I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this is Clockworks, a Legion podcast. Today we're straying from the main uh, premise of Clockworks a little bit, but I don't think that it's very far to go. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) No? You did it? You did that? You get it? Yeah, I get it. (laughs) Uh, That's right, we're talking about Season 1 of Fargo today. You should expect to hear another episode all about Season 2 of Fargo and Season 3 of Fargo. Currently, we're kind of imagining releasing those every two weeks, but we will let you know if something changes. But today, Season 1 of Fargo. First, Jan, in case anyone listening to this doesn't know, this is a podcast about Legion. Why are we talking about Fargo? We are talking about Fargo because it's the other show. (laughs) <laughs> oh, uh, the other show created by Noah Hawley, the creator of Legion, and many of the people behind the scenes are also involved behind the scenes of Fargo. So our person, one of the people that we interviewed, uh, Craig Robleski, is a cinematographer on Fargo as well. Jeff Russo, I keep wanting to say Jeff Sessions. <laughs> you know, very different person. No, very different person. Jeff Russo, the composer for Legion, also the composer for Fargo. So a lot of the same people, and it's... Uh, Many other examples. Yeah, so, and it's also on the same network. They're both on FX. It's very, in some ways, it's very different from Legion. I mean, it's very grounded more in realism, but it also isn't. It also has some fantastical elements to it, and there is a tone that that you can just see that it's both Noah Hawley and it's yeah. fantastic. And I mean, it's based on the uh, Coen brothers movie at the same name, but it's an anthology show where every season is a different story and they all are based in Minnesota. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's a really interesting show for that. And it's vaguely connected to the movie, but not at all with the same characters. So it's, yeah. I like it for that in that you can, watch each of the seasons individually. Like, you don't have to watch any of the seasons without watching the other ones, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But they all build on each other as well, and so it's nice to watch them all three in a row, like we did. One thing in the special features of the DVD of the first season, which we got from the public library... Libraries! Um, Noah Hawley, they were talking about the making of this series, and Noah Hawley said, they pitched it to me, and they said, we want to make Fargo, but without... Marge Gunderson, like, make it from scratch. Can you do that? And he said, so what they're basically asking is, can you write a Coen Brothers movie? Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, he presented the story as in, like, that's an incredibly daunting task that I don't, you know, I guess I'll give it a my best shot. But I say, having watched it, I think it's fair to say he succeeded. Absolutely. This captures absolutely. a lot of what made the movie Fargo so compelling mm-hmm. and that's everything from the tone, the Coen brothers, dark humor, dark that humor. Yeah. Doesn't skimp on either the dark or the humor. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times dark humor, uh, you know, is, is hopeless or pessimistic in its humor. Mm-hmm. Fargo isn't neither far. The Coen brothers movies aren't, and neither is Fargo the show. Yeah. Anyway, Let's get into this a little bit now. This is still a Legion podcast, not a Fargo podcast, and so we're not going to do a episode-by-episode walk through Fargo, as fun as that would be. Um, A moment-by-moment. We're going to do episode-by-episode. Well, we're going to do 
episode, we're not going to do one show of our show per episode of Fargo. Yes, exactly. We are going to treat each episode of season one of Fargo in the same amount of depth that we would treat one beat or scene or moment in an episode of Legion. So, Jan, so we're going to talk about the whole season as one story. Mm -hmm. Jan, do you want to start us off telling us what happens in this first season of Fargo? So episode one is called Crocodile's Dilemma, and everything is set up in this episode. We meet Lester Nygaard, who gets intimidated by Sam Hess, and then we meet Lorne Malvo, who kills Sam Hess when told by Lester to do so, maybe. We meet uh, Molly Salverson and Vern, the police chief, who are trying to make sense of everything, uh, trying to make sense of everything that's happened. We also meet Bill, their squeamish colleague. We meet uh, Lester's wife, who is a shrew, whom Lester kills, setting off a series of events that leads to, to Lorne killing Vern and leaving town. Briefly, we meet Gus Grimley, who can't bring himself to be a tough guy in the face of Lauren's intimidation. We briefly meet Sam, Sam Hess's widow and their horrible, stupid, stupid sons. <laughs> so, how about this episode? <laughs> so, one thing I want to do for every episode, every episode has a title. When we talk about Legion, the episodes are just called Episode 1, and we give them titles. But Fargo has titles, and I want to, with each episode, spend a moment talking about the meaning of each episode title and how it applies to the episode. Mm -hmm. So the crocodile's dilemma. A crocodile kidnaps a child and tells the father, I will return your child if you guess whether I'm going to return your child or not. So, if the father guesses that the crocodile will return the child, then the crocodile can either return the child because the father guessed right, or eat the child because the father guessed wrong. If the father guesses that the crocodile won't return the child, then no matter what the crocodile does, the crocodile's breaking its word. Because if the father guesses that the crocodile will eat the child, and the crocodile does eat the child, then the father's guess was right and the crocodile should have returned the child. If the father guesses that the crocodile will eat the child and the crocodile returns the child, then the crocodile's returning the child even though the father guessed wrong. The crocodile's dilemma is a logical paradox where the father's guess matters, but either way the crocodile will do whatever it wants to. Mm -hmm. And if the crocodile the only way that the crocodile can keep his side of the bargain is if the father guesses that the crocodile is going to return the child. So. What does <laughs> that have to do with this episode of Fargo? Well, obviously, Lorne Malvo is the crocodile. Well, is that obvious? <laughs> I mean, like. I don't think this is the thing about Noah Hawley, I've noticed, is especially in Fargo, but in Legion as well. He likes to have people tell stories. He sure does. And so he'll have people tell stories and he make references in these these episode titles of stories and problems and whatnot. But they never exactly, they're never parallel. No. This crocodile's dilemma kind of applies to Lorne Malvo and him, you know, he'll shoot Sam Hess 
I mean, or kill, kill Sam Hess no matter what Lester says. Right. So you're saying, you're just referring to the moment when Lester and Lauren are in the hospital. Yeah. Lauren says, do you want me to kill this man for you? Yes or no? So, like the crocodile, Lauren is offering Lester a choice. Mm-hmm. Lester can either say yes or say no, and what you're saying is it's like the crocodile's dilemma because Lauren is presenting Lester with the illusion of choice, but really Lauren is going to do whatever he feels like. Yeah, I think so. Do do you think that's what it is? I mean, do you think that applies, or do you think it's anything else? I think it does. Is there anything else in the episode that it could be? I was just going to say, before we go on about the crocodile's dilemma, I just want to totally agree with you about the way that Noah Hawley uses stories, right? And the titles of the episodes throughout the whole season are references to stories or logic problems. And I want to talk more about that at the end of -hmm. all the episodes. But like a lesser writer would give you a episode where you would say, oh, Lorne's the crocodile. And at this moment when he it maps exactly onto and and Lester is the father and Lorne has captured Lester's child. And like a lesser Mm -hmm. writer would have it all map one to one. Yeah. I think the way that uh, Noah Hawley uses stories and uses the titles is always evocative, but not simple. Mm, yeah. And I don't think we are going to, as we go through, I don't think we're going to come to satisfactory, oh yeah, that wraps it all up. And we now understand exactly why the Crocodile's Dilemma is the perfect t- t- episode title for this episode. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's worthwhile for us to dig into it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So... I have kind of a few thoughts on the crocodile's dilemma. Mm-hmm. One, kind of as you said, Lorne Malvo is the crocodile. That's compelling because he's, as we're going to talk about throughout this season, he's predatory mm-hmm. like a crocodile. Yes. And the way that it's the crocodile's dilemma is that he's going to kill no matter what. Yeah. But he makes Lester feel responsible. Mm-hmm. Just like in the crocodile's dilemma, the crocodile the crocodile says, hey, it's up to you. Mm-hmm. And no matter what the father does, the father's going to feel responsible for guessing wrong. And the crocodile can do whatever he feels like. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he is, Lorne is this agent. I call him throughout this season as an agent of chaos. Is like, it's not just that he kills people. It's that he just like randomly wants to watch people want to watch the world burn basically like he he tells the kid to pee in the gas tank is that this episode yeah in this episode he gets the kid to pee in the gas tank to show that you know that he can basically like you know he wants both the woman in the motel and the guy and the guy to suffer like he says you should pee in the gas tank and then he immediately tells on him because he kind of just like likes watching people make bad choices. He, he does, and, and he and likes they'll hurting come up people again and again. That, in yeah, all kinds of ways. In all kinds of ways. Another question, though, Lester is also predatory in this episode and in this show. Hmm. Is there a way of reading it that Lester is the crocodile? That Lester is the one who wants to commit violence and symbolically Lorne gives him permission to Hmm. in the same way that the crocodiles that the child's father gives the crocodile tacit permission to eat his child because of the way the crocodile has posed the question Hmm. does Lorne somehow give Lester permission to be violent I think so like it makes yeah I think he does does. right I don't know if that means that it makes sense that Lester's the crocodile but I think Hmm. Lorne 
Malvo, certainly. I want to call him Malvo instead of Lauren, so I'm not tripping over two L names. Fair enough. Fair enough. You can call him Malvo. Um, but the... I think he does give him permission to be violent, whether that maps onto the crocodile thing yeah. or not. I don't think he would have killed his wife with a hammer if he hadn't met Lorne. Right. And then the other possibility that occurred to me is maybe the crocodile's dilemma is facing Gus. When he pulls Malvo over, he's faced with this dilemma over whether he's going to confront Malvo or not. And even when he chooses not to, he has actually chosen to. Mm-hmm. Right? Because no matter what he chooses, he is going to confront Malvo. And yeah. that's And in that way, that could the crocodile's dilemma could be the entire season. Exactly. For Gus, For yeah. Gus the crocodile's dilemma is the whole season where no matter what choices he's presented with, the conclusion works out mm-hmm. what seems to be within his control but isn't actually. Yeah. And that like the whole episode is about decisions, I think. Mm-hmm. And that what really sticks to my mind about this whole episode being about decisions is Ida, Vern's wife, mm-hmm. who can't decide what color to paint the bedroom, right. the baby's bedroom. baby's bedroom. She keeps changing her mind. She keeps not being able to decide. And why is that in the episode? Because it's an episode about decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's an episode about her being paralyzed by a decision that doesn't really matter. Paint your baby's bedroom whatever color you want to. Yeah, absolutely. And even, like, what happens when she decides white. Yeah. He says, what shade of white? And she's back at... Mm-hmm. Exactly. ...being stuck. Being indecisive again. And then I have a few kind of questions about this episode. Mm-hmm. In general. In moments general? To, to draw attention to and yeah. ask about. And the one that... I don't... This isn't a question, but <laughs> uh, the one moment that really stood out to me is when Malvo hits the deer... He's driving through Bemidji, mm-hmm. and a deer runs out into the road, and he hits the deer, and the guy that who's been in his trunk escapes, mm-hmm. and Malvo gets out of the car and stares at the deer for a while. Yeah. What is that I don't know. about? I don't know. There's a lot of moments in Fargo with just, of long shots of people looking at stuff. Yeah. And just... It's the kind of, it's showing the humanity of just like these regular moments, except they're not regular moments mm-hmm. a lot of the time. It's one of the ways that you add in film, like you add a whole bunch of portent to something is just linger on it. Mm-hmm. Like if he looks at the deer and the camera follows that for half a second, it's just someone looking at a deer. But if he looks at the deer and the camera stays there for 10 seconds, that is a really important deer, (laughs) right? Yeah, And Fargo's full of those 10-second pauses on someone looking at something, and it becomes really important. Mm -hmm. And then what what does he do with the deer? He puts it in the trunk. Right. Right? Because when Molly and Vern go to investigate, they don't see the deer until Vern opens the trunk and finds the deer in the trunk where the man has escaped from. Right. The deer, the blood could be covering up the blood from the guy, so they know they right. know he was in the trunk. Maybe. So, I mean, that's, but, that seems plausible, sort of, except that they find him immediately, so... Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't have necessarily known that he was in the trunk. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's 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 weird. I think it also, the, the focus on Malvo and the deer is another emphasizing him as a predator, right? Yes, exactly. Deer, deer is a prey animal, and he just, like, looks at this deer for a while. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, I noticed 
in this episode is the beginning of one of a few um, objects that are metaphorically significant throughout the show, and that's the washing machine. Mm. So the washing machine, I think, throughout the whole season represents Lester's life. Mm. So here, it's off balance. Mm-hmm. Like so, Lester's life is off balance. Yeah, the washing absolutely. machine is off balance, um, and then he tries to fix it, but it, it only it makes it worse. Yeah. As with his life, mm-hmm. he tries to fix his life and only makes it worse. He tries to fix the washing machine and only makes it worse. Right. I have a question about Malvo. We talked about like Malvo just likes to hurt people and torture people and make them suffer. We've talked about that off mic also. Why does he offer to kill Sam Hess? That seems like he is, like he really presents it as, and even throughout the season, frankly, he acts like he actually is doing it to help Lester, to teach Lester something, something, you know, twisted. Yeah. Well, he says, like, he disrespected you. He disrespected your wife. He, this man, like, had relations with your wife and you're putting up with that? You shouldn't put up with that, you know? Like, why does Malvo care whether why Lester care? is a pushover? He wants the world to be less of pushovers. And he wants, he wants people to think about the rules more. Like, he, he brings up that thing in this episode with the motel, like, can it, what kind of pet can I bring? And he, mm-hmm. and he, He's like, what if I had a fish? And he just, he wants to, he's curious about what if I change the rules? What if I push the rules? What if I, you know? And so that's part of what he does with Lester is he pushes him to say, you know, what. So even. He also just doesn't make sense. Malvo, like, let's not pretend like he is a logical person. He doesn't, you know, the decisions that he makes and the things that he does are not something any one normal person would do and so it's kind of hard you can't analyze him too much i think or we it can, takes away from his what he is i think we can analyze him we can attempt to analyze his motives and we can certainly analyze him from a thematic perspective yes like yeah. why does do these choices happen mm-hmm. and then the other like malvo is not logical is not rational he makes insane choices and i'm using that word not as a superlative but as like he's mentally unsound Mm -hmm. he makes choices that are psychotic and insane Mm -hmm. lester though throughout makes very logical choices Mm -hmm. amoral but logical yeah we can definitely analyze why lester does stuff when malvo offers to kill sam hess he says yes or no Mm -hmm. yes or no why doesn't Lester just say no? Hmm. Because he wants Sam Hess to die. Right. Because that, like, because he was just hum- completely humiliated by him. And on some level, he really does want Sam Hess to die. But on other level, but he can, can kind of convince himself that this guy's not being real. Like, he's never experienced at all someone actually offering to kill another person for him. So, like, he can... He's not... He's, you know, he can push it off as like, it's just a joke. I don't need to say no. Right. But what we see here, tying back into the crocodile's dilemma is no answer is an answer. Yeah, exactly. And in the crocodile's dilemma, that means like there is no answer that is an answer. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but here, not answering, 
he's answering. Except he does answer. He does say yes. He says yeah. yes to the nurse. I know, right? As in, I am here. But does he? Is he sort of saying yes to Lorne, to Malvo? He's trying to say it to the nurse, but there's a part of him that it, it, he bursts out with the word yes because it's what he wants to say. Yeah. Oh, he yes. bursts, his whole body is bursting to say yes, and so he says it towards the nurse, but it's towards Malvo. Because that's what because he that's wants what to say. Because that's what he wants to say so badly. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, and then Malvo really makes that point when they talk later. Like what you were saying, that he doesn't want to say no because he actually does want Malvo to do it, but he wants to convince himself that he's not culpable, and Malvo doesn't let him get away with that yeah, equivocation. Exactly. He says, like, why did you kill him? Right? He doesn't say, why did you let me kill him? Why did you, t- why did you kill him then if you yeah. didn't want him to be dead? Yeah, exactly. I really like that, mm-hmm. too, that, like, while Malvo is a despicable character... There's a certain kind of moral clarity that comes with moral, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? But there's a certain kind of moral clarity that comes with having no morals, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, We've talked a lot about Lester and Malvo. We haven't really mentioned Molly and Vern and everything, too, in this episode. I just wanted to say that when we first watched this, I was really surprised when Vern was killed because it, he felt like the main character. He was like, they really focus on him and his pregnant wife and Molly's there as the deputy. And I was like, it's going to be the story of these two police officers yeah, totally. and how they solve this crime. And then suddenly Vern is dead and you're like, Oh, and we came into when we watched this after the third season was half aired, but we came into it not knowing anything. I yeah. mean, I knew absolutely nothing about mm-hmm. this show or this season. Yeah. So. Well, I knew Colin Hanks was in it, so I was surprised in this first episode that he didn't... I was like, kept waiting for him to appear, and then he finally does at the very, very, very end. But, yeah, I knew nothing, and so I was... Yeah, it was very, very shocking when he was killed. It felt like... It totally felt like he was going to be a main investigator working on this uh, mystery. Mm-hmm. We also, I remember watching it and being like, how is this going to go for a whole season? It's all basically wrapped up. Yeah, that too. Yeah, right. Exactly. All the crimes have happened Yeah, and she has everything she needs to put it together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And she basically does put it together yeah. in the first episode. Yeah, exactly. She just spends the rest of the time trying to convince Prove everyone else. It. Prove it. I have another, one more kind of thought question or moment to that stood out to me and that's that lester doesn't just kill uh his wife he doesn't just hit her on the hand on the head with a hammer once in the flashbacks we re- see him hitting her once mm-hmm. but what he does is like once she's down he like pummels her yeah it's gross and as he's beating her he keeps saying i'm sorry yeah i don't have like a deep question mm-hmm. or comment even on that but it just like really stood out to me the image of someone beating someone to death while saying i'm sorry mm-hmm. i'm sorry i'm sorry bam bam mm-hmm. i don't know because he's so conf- he's conflicted and yet yet he's also like he really wants to do it mm-hmm. he's you know he's tired of putting up with her and tired of the way she's treating him so horribly she does not deserve to die obviously no. But 
I mean, everyone in this is just so slightly caricatured that you have this shrewish wife that is like... Sometimes more than slightly. But yeah, but uh, that is like just over the top. Just the way she demeans Lester is just a bit over the top right. as to how a wife would demean. I would hope it's over the top, my goodness. But, and so like, it's just that like that little bit that makes you go... It's satisfying that he kills her, and yet horrific as well. It's one of the ways that the show kind of makes you complicit in his crimes, is that you're happy that he's beating her to death, and then you feel uh, guilty for being... Yes, Just exactly. as he feels guilty, so does the audience feel guilty for being happy that he murdered his wife. Yeah. This is why I had to stop watching Dexter. I mean, <laughs> I know it kind of got bad towards the end seasons, but like, I just didn't want to be on the side of a serial killer. I just, I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> Anyway, that's on to the side. So as we said at the beginning, Noah Hawley loves to have characters tell stories. Here are some of the stories told in this episode. This episode is not large with stories, so these are pretty broadly defined as stories, and they're both told by Lauren Malvo. One is his story to Lester, We Used to Be Gorillas. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And the other is his story that he tells to Gus. Maps used to say, here there are dragons. And just because the maps don't say that anymore doesn't mean the dragons aren't mm. there anymore. Yeah. So I think both of these stories are like what you were saying a little while ago about Lauren wants to make the world more aggressive and violent and dark. Mm -hmm. Those are both stories justifying the existence of not just explaining but justifying mm -hmm. yes these violence and brutality yeah so episode two episode two is called the rooster prince so we meet uh mr numbers and mr wrench who are henchmen looking for sam hess's killer they hunt and kill the wrong man we then meet we also meet uh, stavros milos the supermarket king of minnesota who hires Lorne Malvo to discover his blackmailer. Lorne discovers that it's his ex-wife's lover, Don, but doesn't tell him. He's unintimidated by Stavros's henchman and ex-hockey player. <laughs> Molly continues to be smart, but Bill is the chief and doesn't believe her that Lester would be involved in any of the murders. She's taken off the case, but continues to investigate. Gus is slowly piecing things together in Duluth with Lester's license plate number. We see Gus spending time with his daughter in parallel to Lou and Molly spending time together. So, this episode is called The Rooster Prince. The story of The Rooster Prince, it is a Jewish parable, and it goes like this. There was a prince who believed that he was a rooster. No one could do anything about it until a wise man came and asked what was going on, and his family said, Are the prince plucks on the ground for seeds and is naked and only makes rooster sounds. So the wise man took off all his clothes and went under the table with the prince and said, I'm also a rooster. And slowly the wise men told him, oh, did you know that roosters can wear clothes? Roosters can speak English. Mm -hmm. And thus the prince was healed. Who in this episode <laughs> is the rooster prince? Or how is this episode relevant to the story of the rooster prince i have literally no idea <laughs> so i have a few suggestions so basically the rooster prince i think is about identity about 
who you are, who you pretend to be, and mm. levels of that. So the rooster yeah. prince is a prince who thinks he's a rooster pretending to be a prince. And it's the question of, well, is he really a rooster? Is he really a prince? Is he really a who? What is he really? So in this episode, I would suggest Bill isn't the chief just because everyone calls him chief. Hmm. Semenko isn't a security chief just because they call him a security chief. Hmm. Stavros yeah. is security man. Yeah. Malvo isn't a minister just because he calls himself a minister. Hmm. And then this one isn't quite as formulaic, but I think Gus thinks he's a bad cop, but acts like a brave cop and therefore becomes a brave cop. Hmm. Or possibly, you know, so that's the reverse. All these people aren't what they act like because who they really are shines through anyway. Mm -hmm. And Gus is the opposite, where he's not a very good cop. Mm Mm-hmm. But he acts like he is, he slowly starts to act like he is one, and that makes him become one. Yeah. It's all about who people are. Okay. Um, Though I do wonder, like, the Rooster Prince, the other kind of more literal connection to that would be Stavros is called the uh, Grocery Store King. Yeah. So I don't know why he would be more of a Rooster Prince than anyone else, but he's the royalty in the, sh- in mm-hmm. the episode. That's true. My basically, my big questions about this episode, the, one, the thing I really wrote down is, when Gus is in his bedroom, and the windows are open, and he looks across into his neighbor's house, and his neighbor is, like, there wearing a robe, and she, like, opens it, and is standing in lingerie in front of the window. Mm-hmm. First of all, what yeah. <laughs> is her deal? But also, what is up? With being able to see into his neighbor's house, and that's something that'll come up in future episodes too, but like, uh, thematically or symbolically, what's going on with him being able to see into his neighbor's house? Well, I feel like later on it will mean that their neighbors are, it's the kind of place where you know your neighbors. And Mm -hmm. so because of this, like courtyard situation where he can see straight across into his neighbor's house then uh then they become friends through that but this is like his not that because later on he talks to the neighbor but this is like his neighbor is unsatisfied and like gets off on showing guests or something like it's a bit i don't know it's, it's a also weird just moment. like I don't know why some, it's here. Yeah, I don't really know why it's in there either. It's I think it shows Gus's goodness that mm-hmm. he looks away, that he's tempted. He's definitely tempted, but then he looks away and doesn't do anything. He doesn't like wander over there and have an affair with the neighbor. Right. You know, he chooses to be good. And maybe it's another thing about identity, about who Gus is, because this is a in the real world, everything would be more complicated than this. But in mm-hmm. symbolic terms, this woman reveals herself to him and symbolically offers herself to him. And he uh, doesn't act on it, as you say. And that's telling us something about his character. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so the story is told. Do you have anything else? No. So the story is told in this episode at Vern's wake or funeral 
his widow Ada tells Molly the story of the chief before Vern who died when a hailstone hit him right. while he was drinking a milkshake. And Molly says, what kind of milkshake? And Ada says, strawberry, I think. Yeah, without missing a beat, she asks what kind of milkshake. And that's like, that's the kind of question you ask, even though it makes no sense. It makes no relevance. Yeah. And Ada knows the answer. Yeah, that's true. And Ada doesn't say, what difference would that make? Strawberry, I think. Yeah. And that detail, by the way, I think that is it's partly dark humor. It's partly just plain humor. But it's also partly showing us something about the nature of stories that, to mm-hmm. qu- quote John Hodgman's catchphrase, which I have before in our podcasts, specificity is the soul of narrative, right? Mm -hmm. The difference between a story and not a story is what kind of milkshake. Yeah, that's true. And then the other story is a story that Lou tells, uh, Lou Salverson, Molly's father, tells that when she was five, they had to put her under anesthesia to fix her teeth. He says... My soft little girl in a world of drills and needles. Hmm. And this story is a very Noah Hawley story where, typically of Noah Hawley, it seems on the surface of it to have no relevance to anything, but both characters understand the point being driven at. Mm-hmm. I think we, the audience, can yeah, we pretty quickly figure out what the point is. Yeah. But, you know, Molly's talking about investigating this m- horrible murder. And Lou says, when you were five, we put you under anesthesia to fix your teeth. My soft little girl in a world of drills and needles. Mm-hmm. And they doesn't explain that story anymore yeah. or its relevance anymore. But I think... he Lou really struggles with Molly being a police officer and Molly being in this world of horrible murders. And he repeatedly just like does not want her to be there. But he also always completely respects her decision to be there, which mm-hmm. I appreciate so much. We talked Luke just for a second about Lou Salverson. <laughs> he's too good for this world, and we'll talk about him in much, much more detail in season two, since he's the main character. But even in this, but, he is, oh, I love him. Love him. He's love a fantastic him. character. Um, I want to mention, there's a quote in this episode that, I don't know, I like, I just have to mention it because... It's my favorite quote in all of Fargo is Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers. Mr. Wrench is the is the deaf one and Mr. Numbers is the other one, I assume. We don't actually know what their it's real names are. In the are. credits, we know that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, he's like, there's no library in this town. Why is there no library in this town? And Max Gold says, cutbacks. And Mr. Wrench signs and he says, he thinks every town should have a library. And it's a little tiny conversation. But first of all, I completely agree with them. They're the bad guys. And I'm like, yeah, every town should have a library. This is a big part of why Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers, despite being the bad guys, are the best guys. Yeah. They're extremely likable. Mm-hmm. This is part of the reason why. They're introduced immediately as extremely likable characters, and this is one of the reasons why. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I don't know. I just need to shout out, like, obviously I love libraries, and so... And it seems like Noah Hawley does, too. Yeah, exactly. So... Episode three. Episode three, A Muddy Road. Molly dis- discovers that the ca- case she's stuck on, the frozen guy, is connected to Le- Lester with some brilliant detective work. Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers are sure that Lester killed Sam Hess and try to intimidate him. Gus fesses up to his mistake in letting Lauren go with a warning and is sent to meet Molly. They hang out at Lou's diner with Greta in tow and compare notes. 
Lorne takes over the blackmail of Stavros. He kills his dog, changes his drugs, and puts blood in his shower. So a muddy road is a Buddhist cone. Um, if you don't know what a cone is, K-O-A-N, it's a Buddhist parable or saying that often sounds a lot like a joke without a punchline. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, what's the sound of one hand clapping is a Buddhist cone also. So the Buddhist cone is about the monk Tenzin, the Buddhist monk, meets a lovely girl and carries her across a muddy road. He continues going, and later on in the night, his companion can't hold back any longer and scolds him, saying, Buddhist monks are not supposed to even look at attractive women, let alone touch them. Hmm. And Tenzin says... I left that girl at the other side of the road. Are you still carrying her? Hmm. So, what is the muddy road in this episode? And I have, even before you say anything... (laughs) I'm just always going to be about these stories. I have no idea. (laughs) Think it over, but I'm going to have something... This is, as far as I noticed, this is the only one of all the episodes where the title actually gets used in dialogue. Mm, Yes. And the way it gets used in dialogue does not seem to be uh, illuminating. (laughs) No. So they're in when Molly meets her friend in a restaurant. Her friend says, oh, I heard about what happened, those murders, jeez. And Molly says, yeah, it's a muddy road. Hmm. And I feel like she's not meaning it in terms of like a Buddhist cone. She's meaning it in terms of like... It's a hard, you know, messy thing that's going on. Or she also means if she's carrying it with her. Mm-hmm. She's thinking about it all the time. She's stop- not stopped thinking about Lester. Yeah. So what's the muddy road about and why is it relevant to this episode? I mean, it's about carrying things with you. Mm-hmm. And it's about, so if if the muddy road is relevant to Molly, it's that she's carrying the murder of... Uh, Vern especially, mm-hmm. with her, even though it's not her case. It's not what she's supposed to be focusing on. But she can't let it go, much as the bad Buddhist monk couldn't let go of the girl. Yep. Um, maybe the muddy road refers to Stavros, who's carrying the money mm. with him everywhere he goes. Yeah. He's being blackmailed, and like, where's the money? What What does she know? What does the blackmailer know about the money? Mm-hmm. And Stavros can't let not only the literal money, but also he's carrying it in that uh, sense of this cone. Yeah. Um, and it could also be Gus is also carrying Malvo around with him. Mm. So Gus let Malvo go, but he did not let Malvo go, and he mm-hmm. can't let Malvo go, and he's carrying him around all the time. Yeah. The muddy road. Sorry. He also there also is a literal dragging scene in this episode. The very beginning is the frozen guy showing how he got to be in the trunk by being dragged out of his office, mm-hmm. literally, literally carried. So Malvo's actually carrying someone. Yeah. There's also a sense in which the muddy road, the cone, is about legalism, right? Mm. Like it's about yeah. do you follow the letter of the law says you don't look at or touch an attractive woman, but the spirit of the law says I can carry someone over a road to help them mm-hmm. and then move on. Yeah. Right? So is legalism relevant in this episode? Maybe it is with Gus, mm-hmm. because even though he's a bad 
cop. And by the way, I keep saying Gus is a bad cop. We'll talk about, I hope, Gus at the end of the episode. I love that Gus is a bad cop. Yes. But we'll talk more about that. He's not a good detective is what he is, especially. But even though Gus is a bad cop, according to the letter of the law, he still tries to do the right thing according to the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. So Gus is like Tenzin, the Buddhist monk who isn't following the rules, but is following the spirit of what the law is meant to be. Mm -hmm. Those are my, I don't, yeah, that's as far Mm -hmm. as I can go with a muddy road. So uh, we just have to call out about this episode in uh, Legion Connection. Legion Connection in this episode. The dog's name is King. The dog's <laughs> name is King. Jan, do you think this dog also is the Shadow King? Maybe. Maybe. No. It's all the same world. No, it's not. Okay. Yeah, okay. probably not. Definitely not. But then he also dies in this episode. Well, he seems to. <laughs> and, uh, no, yeah, he does. It's, it's, it's gross and sad that dog dies. And... The blood in the shower, oh, it's really gross. Before we get to the blood in the shower, talking about the dog dies is like, they use the killing of the dog in this episode exactly the way killing of dogs, uh, like the uh, TV trope killing of the dog, hmm. right? It emphasizes Malvo's ruthlessness yeah, exactly. in a way that like we saw him gun down a police officer, yeah. but like... Killing the dog dog really underlines his, how ruthless he is. Yeah, exactly. Um, what are you saying about blood in the shower? Oh, just, it's super gross. (laughs) Um, and I was expecting it to be like someone literally died, but no, he just like bought pig's blood and put it in the shower. Yeah. Um, I do like, there's something about this episode and like, it's more about Malvo that like, he... In this flashback scene to how he got the frozen guy, he walks into a crowded office, he grabs a guy by the tie, and drags him out, and nobody stops him. Right. Nobody at all. He takes this guy out, and he kills him, eventually, and everyone in his office just ignores it. They just kind of walk watch him go by. Yeah. And, like, Malvo does all these horrible things not really in secret. Like, he's not doing what Lester does and trying to cover things up. He's just doing them and getting away with them because of the kindness of people, because of the bystander effect, because he breaks the rules of society so hard. Yeah. So hard that people don't even know how to catch him. I think that's exactly it. He breaks the rules so hard that people don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to react. And that's with, like... I think that's maybe in the past episode with the mail that like he goes to the post office and he says, you know, you're going to give me my package and I'm going to, and he, I'm not going to give you ID. You're, there's a package in there for Duluth, even though we're in Duluth and all the packages say Duluth, you're going to give me my package because I say so. And he doesn't even in that episode threaten the guy. Like he implicitly threatens him. Yeah. But explicitly he just says, give me my package. Mm-hmm. And he does. Yeah. Right? He relies on that, like, weird kindness of and not wanting to stir things up. It's, a, I think, a little bit a, uh, not exactly the same thing, but, but psychologically connected to the Milgard experiment. Mm, yeah. It's about authority. It's about, you know, 
I have to follow the rules of what I'm supposed to do. And when someone breaks that so hard, it's not exactly the Milgard experiment, but it's psychologically very similar. Yeah. That, like, people just, well, I guess I'm going to have to find a way to make this seem normal. Yeah, totally. Um, I have to just comment while we're making random thoughts about this episode. I love Molly and how smart she is. Yes, exactly. With showing... Lester, the photo of yep. Malvo, so surreptitiously, and mm-hmm. like, yeah, she's so smart, she, oh. and she's the best. Molly's the best. <laughs> um, and what do we think about, this is the episode where Molly and Gus first meet. Mm-hmm. And she, it's interesting that she is so smart and so competent, and he, in this meeting especially, is not particularly impressive. And in their meeting, it seems like Molly is like, hey, yeah, okay, sure, give me the information that's going to help me on my case, but I'm not that interested, until he has a daughter. Yeah. That's when she starts to like him. Mm-hmm. Why? He's her dad, in a way. Yeah. I think that she sees in him this this uh, father, this single father with a daughter, and that's what she was. Mm-hmm. And so she and she loves her dad, and mm-hmm. so and her dad, as we said, like she loves him, but also objectively, he's the best person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, and I think she also sees that, like, his whole reason for this guy yeah. was really intimidating, and she's like, "But you ran the things, and how could you not?" But then she sees Greta, and right. she and it all she and she's so smart and she's such a good detective that she no. instantly knows why he didn't she instantly knows she instantly knows why an intimidate an intimidated person who has a daughter at home wouldn't follow up on this yeah it's so brilliant i love it it really shows her competence and mm. her compassion and her empathy all at the same time yeah um so Anything else? No, you go ahead. So stories told in this episode. Molly's friend in the restaurant tells Molly a story about her boyfriend who got a spider bite and the spider laid eggs in his neck and they all broke loose. They were in the middle of having sex and the boil broke loose and there were baby spiders everywhere. It's a horrifying story that gets told twice because first Molly tell, first it's told to Molly and then later... Molly herself tells it and says, not sure I want to live in a world where that can happen to a yeah, person. Exactly. Which is such a fantastically delivered oh, and written line. line. Yep. That's one of the stories. Do we have any comments on the meaning of that story, on the significance of it? I think that what she says is, I don't want to live in the kind of world where that's going to happen, but we do. Yeah. And that Molly knows that we do, and Gus kind of doesn't. Hmm. Gus still wants to believe in the goodness of people, and it's hard for him to realize that we live in that kind of a world. It's also just like this urban legend kind of story right? that maybe we don't live in a world like that, that within the fictional world of Fargo, we could, because her friend is telling it firsthand. But in our world, 
that story would be told secondhand and it would never be true because that doesn't actually happen and it's super gross. <laughs> that stop doesn't ta- stop talking about spiders. <laughs> tell me how we don't actually live in a world where that can happen. <laughs> exactly. To a person, <laughs> I don't want to live in the kind of world where that where spiders well, can come out of here. Good news ah. because we don't. Guaranteed, a hundred percent. I'm not looking it up, but we don't live in a world where that can happen. Okay. <laughs> don't add us. Don't add us. <laughs> oh, do not add us about this, <laughs> unless it's to say that definitely can't happen. <laughs> okay. Well, Second story. Stavros tells. Lorne Malvo, a story about St. Lawrence, who was martyred by the Romans, and they were mm. burning him alive, and he said, turn me over, I'm done. Mm-hmm. That's a saint, says Stavros. Yeah. I don't know what... I just feel like it's it shows that Stavros uh, follows... Follows religion that's brutal. He, mm-hmm. He's very much like he's strongly religious, strongly like Catholic, basically, because of the money that he found. And uh, he wants to find saints who are as brutal as he is. Yeah, totally. Um, and then Malvo, at the end of the episode, Malvo in a voiceover reads about the finding of Moses in the uh, basket in the ru- in the river. Mm-hmm. And then we see the shower of blood. And it's another example of what we're saying about Noah Hawley and the way he uses stories. Because a less skilled writer would have Malvo reading the story of the plagues. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But no, Malvo reads about finding Moses. And we, Noah Hawley, trusts us to be smart enough to connect that to the plagues ourselves. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think that it's... Shows a lot of faith. And it, I mean, it also holds his cards close to his chest because we have no idea why Malvo is telling us this story yeah. until the last shot is the blood and then the whole story makes sense in a new context. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, how Noah Hawley tells stories, right? Yeah. He tells a story and we don't understand it. And even the story a couple, an episode ago about my poor girl in a world of drills and needles... For example, mm-hmm. he, Lou Solverson never explains what that story means, except for that, my little girl, soft little girl in a world of drills and needles. But that's the explanation, right? He tells about her teeth having trouble, and what, that, what does that have to do with anything? And then he gives it a kicker that recontextualizes it. Yeah, exactly. No, Holly likes to write that kind of story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All um, right, so episode four? Episode four. Episode four is called Eating the Blame. So we discover what happened to the to the money in Fargo the movie. <laughs> Gus arrests Malvo, but Malvo is a master manipulator. He gets out of it with a, with a quick disguise and a fake ID. Malvo continues his plague on Stavros by releasing crickets in his store like a plague. Lester is kidnapped by Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers and manages to escape, meeting up with cops and punching one in order to get arrested. But he's soon joined in the cell by Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers. So the title of the episode is Eating the Blame. Eating the Blame is another Buddhist cone, mm-hmm. and here's how it goes. Circumstances arose one day which delayed the preparation of the dinner of a Soto Zen master, Fugai, and his followers. In haste, the cook went to the garden with his curved knife to cut off the tops of the green vegetables, chopped them together, and made soup, unaware that he had accidentally included part of a snake in the vegetables. The followers of Fugai thought they had never tasted such great soup, but when the master himself found the snake's head in his bowl, he summoned the cook. 
What is this? he demanded, holding up the head of the snake. Oh, thank you, master, replied the cook, taking the snake's head and eating it quickly. Okay. And you see how Buddhist cones are like jokes with a punchline, without a punchline. Mm. You feel like there's going to be one more line that is the punchline of that joke, but it's not a joke. It's not. It's a cone. It's a cone. Um, so who in this episode is eating the blame? How is eating the blame relevant to this episode? Well, Gus eats the blame for the arresting Malvo. He arrests Malvo and has to deal with the... I guess he doesn't choose to eat the blame entirely. I don't know. I mean, I would suggest maybe what Malvo does is like what the cook does in that he just bald-facedly denies. Yes. Right? Exactly. He... What we were saying last episode, he gets away with things by breaking the rules so strongly, and that's kind of what he does here. Mm -hmm. He just... Uh, Frank Peterson eats Lauren Malvo. Yes. His personality of Frank Peterson eats Lauren Malvo and let Malvo disappears. Mm-hmm. Much like the snakehead disappears. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, all it takes is uh, guts. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the kind of riddle he gives is why can we, why can humans see so many shades of green? And it's because we can see snakes in the grass. Yeah. So he is a snake in the grass. He's literally a snake in the grass. As there's a snake in the grass in yeah. the story. Yeah, exactly. Totally. There's not a lot of stories told in this episode either. The only real story told in this episode is Malvo, I suppose, tells a story of Frank Peterson. Mm-hmm. But Malvo's uh, question, why can the human eye see more shades of green than any other color? Mm-hmm. And Gus can't figure it out. And he tell, he asks Molly. And Molly immediately knows the answer, which, mm-hmm. by the way, once again, Molly's so smart and it's yes. awesome. And she tells him a story. And the story is, because of predators, say you're a monkey and you need to see snakes. Mm-hmm. You can see lots of different colors of green, so you can spot a snake and get out of the way. Mm-hmm. The story that is the predators are green. Yeah. I think exactly. we've pretty much made sense of why that story yeah, is told. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing in this episode, and it kind of brings up like the whole the season as a whole, but like the looks that Frank that when Malvo is pretending to be Frank Peterson, and the like self satisfied look he gives to Gus is enough that like. Oh, it's so satisfying that Gus is the one to kill him. Yeah. You know, that, like, he is so horrible in this moment, and Gus is so betrayed. Yeah. I mean, Gus screws up. Like, let's, like that's clear that Gus should not have just arrested him in the spot there. That was dumb. But, but man, the way he, the way Lorne becomes this new character so quickly and so completely. Mm-hmm. Is just unbelievable, and yeah, and Gus is so screwed. <laughs> he is. Um, I should maybe have put this before telling the stories, but two other one, things to say about this episode before we move on to the next one are Lester's infected wound mm, is getting right. worse 
And in this episode, it keeps getting worse. It keeps getting worse. And we'll talk about it again at the end. But Mm -hmm. just to note that in this episode, it has gotten so bad, it's almost unbearable. Yes. He can't handle it anymore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And And that is mirroring his guilt. Is not quite guilt, but... Yeah, I think we'll talk about what it Mm -hmm. means, hopefully, in a little more depth. But we can say, for now, it's something about his internal state, right? Yeah. And the other thing to point out, we talked about the connection to the movie here, that the money from the movie gets right. found. There's also a big, another shout-out connection to Legion, which is just that crickets. There's crickets in this episode. Oh, yeah. Like the crickets and Legion. I didn't even think about that. And that's much like the dog being named King. I don't think there's a deep just significant meaning, but hey, look, crickets. Yeah, so next. All right, so... Episode 5 is called The Six Ungraspables. Lester is trapped with Mr. Wrench and Mr. Numbers, who uh, eventually he gives them Malbo's name. Lester ends up in the hospital because of his infected hand, and Molly tries to use his deliriousness in, in the ambulance to her advantage, but is unsuccessful. But she's finally successful at convincing Bill that Lester may be involved. Melville locks Don in the closet to prevent him from ruining their plan of blackmail. <laughs> Gus and his neighbor have a chat, and Malvo spots Gus and follows him home, where his neighbor attempts to, to intimidate him into leaving. So, the six ungraspables. Of all the episode titles in this season, this is the one that gave me the most trouble. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can tell... Based on, I mean, I, to be honest, I didn't spend hours researching it or anything, but mm-hmm. a quick, a few quick Google searches. As far as I can tell, the Six Ungraspables is a tenet of Zen Buddhism, which is that the uh, basis of reality, what is the basis of reality? Someone asked a Zen master, and the answer was the Six, six Ungraspables. And the Six Ungraspables are the five senses and the mind. So in other words, the basis of reality is your senses and the mind, and it's Zen because how can reality be based on things that are ungraspable, mm-hmm. intangible concepts, but reality is based in your mind and your senses. Mm-hmm. This episode is the halfway point in the series. It's episode 5 of 10, and I would argue that it's uh, that The Six Ungraspables is a good title for the central episode because it's about, it's a statement on the meaning of the whole series, mm. the whole season, um, about what is the nature of reality and what's the basis of your reality. Yeah. And beyond that, I'm not so sure. Like, um, I could say that there's... It's about the senses. Mr. Wrench can't hear, though he hasn't been able to hear since he was first introduced. introduced so I don't know why that's more significant in this episode than any other one. Mm-hmm. Molly smells the baby mm. when she goes in and Ada's had a baby. And she, do you want to smell it? And she smells it. Mandu reaches behind the washing machine to feel for the hammer that we know is there. Mm. Except it's not there. And it's, she can't feel it. It's ungraspable. It's ungraspable <laughs> and she can't feel it. Gus turns on his brights and can't see Malvo. Hmm. And then, in terms of the mind, I don't know about taste. 
Hmm. Maybe got maybe. Gus and the neighbor have drink uh, have milk together. They have milk together. They don't comment on the taste of it. No. Maybe like they such they shove, uh, Mister Wrench's Dirty stinky sock, sock yeah. in Gus's ma- in Lester's, Lester's mouth. mouth. Yeah. But again, he doesn't comment on the taste. But maybe. Yeah. And then, uh. In terms of mind, I think Lester is septic and delirious and out of his mind. Yeah. And so that's really uh, relevant to the idea of mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Did you notice uh, Molly's watching a snake documentary? in the oh, first really? Few, in the first few minutes of this episode, she's watching a documentary. It's just kind of on in the background as she's in her house. And it's a documentary about snakes. And so, like, this whole... Snake in the grass thing, and then she's, she's watching about snakes. She's watching about snakes. It's how like Molly just absorbs and knows information mm-hmm. all the time because she like will do this. We'll have like a documentary on the background, and she's goes away so, the next day and knows stuff. Yeah, even though that. this is after she already knew that information, it just shows the kind of person she is and the kind of knowledge she acquires and the kind of smartness that she has. It's also one of the things about this season that we haven't mentioned is every episode was written by Noah Hawley mm-hmm. and that gives the whole season like we're talking about what is this episode this episode but there's an aspect about the whole season is like one big 10 hour long movie where the same themes and ideas just get drawn out not repeated but drawn slowly out mm-hmm. in a way that passing it off to a different writer They'll hit the same theme in a different way, but when it's all Noah Hawley telling one long story, the snake in the grass comes up in a way. Yeah. And two, with the the snowstorm Mm -hmm. is seeded so far ahead of time. Like, they're always talking about the storm. The storm is coming. The storm is coming. Do we have enough plows? Yada, yada, yada. And it isn't, I mean, it's episode six after this that... We actually have the storm happen. But we've been talking, but we've about, been it talking about it since Bill the beginning. Bill became the chief, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. It was like the first thing he cared about. Yeah. There's a connection to Legion again, another tenuous connection, which is Davros has a sculpture of a disembodied hand in his office. Oh, really? Yes, I didn't he does. That. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Somehow, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's weirdly connected. So, stories told? To, stories told, yeah. Gus's neighbor, who's a rabbi, mm-hmm. tells Gus a story. And the story is, a rich man sees the world full of misery. He said, "Look, reads the newspaper and says, I can help, and gives away all his money. But then he reads the newspaper and sees that the world is still full of misery. People are still suffering. So he says that he's going to donate his liver. Uh, and he, the doctor takes his liver but the man still reads in the newspaper that the people are still suffering so he says this time i want to donate everything the doctor says you can't give away everything that's suicide so the guy goes into his bath writes organ donor on the wall and gives the last thing he can give which is his life Gus can't understand the meaning of this parable. Mm-hmm. Gus takes a couple of guesses at what the parable means. And that's like, I think this story is the m- most Noah Hawley story ish story in the whole series. <laughs> it's the story that's at the 
like I didn't check the numbers, but it's the center. Mm. It's the story at the center of the whole show. Mm -hmm. It's the longest story anyone tells, and it gets acted out. So it's like a more important story than any other story in the whole series, I would say. Or in the whole season, I mean. A more important story than any other story in the whole season. Gus can't understand it. It has no easy answer, like all the parables in Fargo. Mm -hmm. the, par the interpretation that the neighbor gives is only a fool thinks he can solve all the problems of the world. Right. That's the, more, the meaning of the parable mm -hmm. given to Gus by the neighbor. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's... I mean, Malvo wants to almost, like, solve all the problems of the world in, like, this twisted way. I don't think that any of the good guys necessarily want to change the world. They're just focusing on their one thing. Well, I think you're right. I, I think this story uh, and Gus's reaction to it is one of the major character notes on Gus, which is, the, the rabbi says, only a fool tries to save the world by himself. And Gus says, you got to try, don't you? Mm -hmm. I think that is, in a sentence, Gus's character. Yeah. But you got to try, don't but you? you got to try. Yeah, that's very true. Um, the other story told, there's one other story told in this episode, mm -hmm. and it's told by Lauren Malvo. It's a story about a man who had a 110-pound Rottweiler. And the man's girlfriend thought it would be funny to get down on all fours and let the dog hump her. And then he says that they had to shoot the dog behind the ear to get it off. Right. And the moral of that story that Lauren gives us is... Like, it's... I forget how he phrases the moral of the story mm -hmm. but the, what the point he's trying to make is the animal world is brutal and violent and animals know that they're animals the subtext yeah. bit is humans aren't seeing the world properly mm. yeah humans think that things aren't dangerous humans think that things aren't the way they are but the way they are is kill or be killed eat or be eaten violence and desire and yeah and he goes back to him saying we used to be gorillas mm. the dog is yeah. still a dog the gorillas are still gorillas that's the way he sees the world mm -hmm. i think it does totally connect with this idea of uh solving the world's problems that what he thinks the problem is people pretending to be something they're not mm-hmm Right? Absolutely. So what does he think the problem that he's trying to solve? So episode six is called Burden's Ass. And this is the episode where everything comes to a head. Malvo sets an elaborate trap to kill Don by police gunfire. Lester escapes the hospital and sets up Chaz, his brother, for the murder of his wife. Bill falls for it, arresting Chaz. Molly and Gus end up in a blizzard whiteout with Malvo, Mr. Wrench, and Mr. Numbers. Malvo escapes, killing Mr. Numbers, and Gus accidentally shoots Molly. Stavros tries to run away and rebury the money and encounters a rain of fishes and his son dead. 
So, this episode is called Burden's Ass. Burden's Ass is another logic problem. Mm. And here's the the idea of Burden's Ass. It's not a parable or a fable, it's a logic problem. Okay. There's an ass who is equally hungry and thirsty. He is halfway between water and food. Mm-hmm. Because he's equally hungry and thirsty, he is can't decide between the food and the water, and so dies of hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. Hmm. Okay. That's Burden's ass. Okay. So how does that apply in this episode? Like, the concept of Burden's ass is people who are entirely self... In, I mean, one of the ways of understanding it is it's if you're motivated entirely by self-interest and logic... Mm-hmm. Then there's no way for you to choose between two things you that are Desire. both in your interest. So we might say that Stavros is stuck between wanting the money and wanting to pay his debt to God. Yeah, and has been through the whole mm-hmm. his whole part of the story. He Absolutely. wants to make his peace, pay his debt, be right with God, but he also wants to keep that money. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which is interesting, even though he's made more than a much more than. That million dollars or whatever it is. It's interesting. Yeah. And then maybe Don Chumpf is stuck between the equally strong desire to survive and to get the money. So he recognizes that Malvo is a bad guy. I mean, he already knew Malvo was a bad guy. Mm-hmm. But he recognizes that Malvo is not someone that he can trust after Malvo locks him in the cupboard. Yeah, absolutely. But he still desires the money so much that the, his self-preservation is overcome by the desire for the money. Mm-hmm. But his desire to survive uh, keeps him from being himself, working well to like being in on the plan. He's yeah, a stool. absolutely. The reason he's a stooge rather than in on the plan is because his desire to survive makes him not as ruthless as Malvo, and therefore Malvo can't trust him. To be the kind of ruthless that mm-hmm. Malvo is. And by the time he's trying to kind of get out of it, it's too late. Yeah. Much too late. I don't know. And those are the two that struck me as people who are stuck between equally strong desires pulling them in two opposite directions. Yeah. There is, I don't know why it makes me think of Gus shooting Molly, is that mm-hmm. like his decision of what to do in that moment. But I don't know if that fits. I mean, there is a bit. There is perhaps that it's uh, a counter example. It's an op- It's an example of him not being burden's ass. Mm, yeah. That he could have been stuck between do I shoot, do I not shoot, do nothing, get shot himself and die. But he makes a choice. And even if it was a bad choice, what we see there is that it's better to make a choice than to be paralyzed by indecision. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So even shooting Molly would have been is better than just standing there and doing nothing would have been. Mm-hmm. There's a few things I want to draw attention to in this episode. And the first one is this scene opens with a fish. Yeah. And the fish comes out and it, we follow the fish as it's like... Deep fried. Deep fried and then served. It's beautiful yeah, cinematography. Absolutely. And it's given to the mobsters. Right, who then eat it. Yeah. And there's something to the idea of... Like, seeing this thing go all the way into food. Yeah. From alive all the way to food. Mm-hmm. 
And then there's also, of course, the obvious connection, connection is the that there's fishes. a bookend on this episode yeah. of it starts with fish and it ends with fish. Yeah. And it starts with a fish being killed so that people can live. Mm-hmm. And it ends with fish still being killed, but fish killing people. Yeah, exactly. I I just found it really interesting about this is the end of Stavros's story. Right. He won't appear in any further episodes. He um he has all these plagues brought about on him by Malvo. Right. He make he brings the blood, he brings the crickets, he brings you know, he gives him Adderall so he feels crazy, all this stuff. But then Death of the Firstborn is the last one. And that's just a freak accident. Like Malvo does not cause that. Right. At all. And what that makes me think, okay. In the snowstorm, when Malvo captures Mr. Numbers, he uh like stabs him and then pushes on the wound and says, Who? And Mr. Numbers says, God hmm. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. He's not answering his question, but in the same exact way as Lester is talking to not the person that he's talking to when he says, yeah, yeah, back in The Crocodile's Dilemma. Malvo, who is coming after me? And Mr. Number says, God. Yeah. And then in this episode, who was behind the plagues that were attacking Stavros? Mm-hmm. It was Malvo, except that it maybe it wasn't. Maybe it, maybe wasn't. it was God. Yeah. And in a sense, it gets me thinking about... Theology aside for a moment, let's just think about fiction. The god of this story is Noah Hawley, mm-hmm. who is controlling everything and making everything happen for a yeah, reason. absolutely. So within the context of this story, it's true that God is the one really behind the plagues. Mm-hmm. God really is punishing Stavros for his greed. God is just Noah Hawley working through... Uh, Lauren Malvo. Right, like, yeah. That is literally what is happening. The mm-hmm. god of this universe is using the evil man as his tool to make a point and teach a lesson, you know? Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. then he finishes it in the end by being able to control nature, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. The Reign of Fishes is super weird, but it, yeah. I mean, that kind of stuff does happen. Like, there are crazy freak yeah. things like that. I mean, I have in my notes just written what is with the rain of fishes. Yeah. And I mean, it's like the fish coming to the mobsters and the fish coming down. It like did a whole like sleeps the fishes like the Godfather, which I watched fairly recently and like that sleeping with the fishes. And so the sun literally does sleep with the fishes. And there is this, like, mob connection. Like, the people in Fargo, the Fargo contingent or whatever, are mafia or, you know, like, not actual mafia, but organized crime. Yep. That's the word I'm looking for. Yep. And and so there is very much that theme. Even though, like, it just makes it feel all connected, even though it's not really all connected. It's yeah. vaguely, it's only connected through Malvo, but it touches still, all these things, but none of them actually had anything to do with each other. Except for the hand of God. Except for the hand of God. By which AKA we mean Noah Hawley. By which we mean Noah Hawley. <laughs> so, stories told in this episode, Don reads a story that Malvo wrote. Don, on the phone, reads to Stavros a story that Malvo wrote, which is, Once upon a time there was a boy. And he looked through the windows and wondered why he was in and why he was out. 
and out in the darkness the wolves came. Do you understand what I'm saying? And Don clearly does not understand what he no, is saying. No, at all. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? And Stavros, yes, I know exactly what you're saying. So that, I mean, we talked, we've talked already about Noah Hawley likes stories that mm-hmm. don't, that aren't evident. Yeah. He likes to have his audience, but also his characters work a little bit to figure out what the point of the story is. Yeah. And this is another great example of that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not incredibly hard for us, the audience, to figure out what yeah. is happening in this yeah, story. Absolutely. Dawn doesn't understand it, but we do. Yeah. That we are, that Stavros is rich and he's worried that the he's going to get overthrown kind of thing. Yeah. Or the wolves are coming for that's him. That's funny because I said we wouldn't have to work hard to understand it, but your interpretation isn't the same as mine, hmm. which is I think Stavros is the boy who used to look through windows oh, and too. he was out in the cold wondering why he was out in the cold. And the wolves are not people who are coming to overthrow Stavros. They're Stavros's baser instincts that come out of the darkness and lead him to being uh, wicked. Mm, out of the darkness, out of his poverty, the wolves of his own nature mm. came. Interesting. But, like, I lo- actually really love it when we're both yeah. like, yeah, the meaning of the story is pretty obvious. Yeah. Oh, not at all what not I said. Not at all. Not what my, my obvious meaning isn't your obvious meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find out in this episode that Gus wanted to work for the post office. Yeah, I love that it. He, uh, his story, he's so sweet and just, like, I don't know, I have, like, giant love for Gus and his, like, his love for his daughter. And he's just like... I just wanted a job and I guess like police were hiring and he never wanted to really be in that role of police in that role of he's not a really good policeman. He's a really good person. Yeah. But he's not a good policeman. And he turns out he wants to work for the post office. Because he wants to be involved in people's lives yeah. and bring them that check. And like, yeah, he's it's so, just like he's too pure for this world. He is too pure for this world. <laughs> I mean, like we talked Molly about that. He likes him because of that. We actually, in the last episode, talked in almost those exact terms about. Uh, I mean, when we were talking about the last episode about he's too pure from this world for this world, he thinks that the world is good, and this mm-hmm. whole experience is disillusioning for him in a way that Molly already knew there was evil in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Gus academically knew there was evil, but he didn't really want to believe it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, episode seven, Who Shaves the Barber? So, Chaz is arrested for the murders, and Lester is off the hook. Lester planted a gun on his nephew, and so he goes to school with that in his bag. Molly recovers from her gunshot wound, and Gus feels horribly about shooting her. Mr. Wrench is also in the hospital, and Molly speaks to him, but he refuses to give any information now that his partner is dead. In this episode, we meet FBI agents Budge and Pepper, who are played by Kay and Peel. They fail horribly at their stakeout when Malvo shows up and shoots everyone in the Fargo Mafia organized crime headquarters. Lester, meanwhile, sleeps with Sam Hess's widow in a final revenge for Sam's years of humiliation. When Molly comes back from recovering in the hospital, she finds that Chaz has been arrested and Lester's off the hook and everything seems to be fine, except she knows that it's not. So, Who Shaves the Barber may be one of the logic puzzles that is best known. Is this one you were familiar with before? Nope, not at all. Uh Ah, see, this is 
one of the few that I knew before I looked it up. Mm. It's another logic puzzle, and this is what it means. In a certain town, there is a barber who shaves all men who don't shave themselves. Who shaves the barber? Right. It's another... He shaves himself. But he, he shaves the men who don't shave themselves. Right. Right? The barber's got a big beard. The barber, I mean, the answer is the barber's got a beard. <laughs> we solved it, guys. We solved, we solved the logic puzzle. <laughs> no more paradoxes. What's the sound of one hand clapping? This. <laughs> yep. Solved it. I don't really, I mean, my connection to who shaves the barber in this episode, I have a hard time seeing it. And my only real stab at it is, it's a logic puzzle and that connects to this episode because it seems like we have a solution to everything, but the solution doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Much like the idea of who shaves the barber. No matter what answer you get, the solution doesn't make sense. Molly wakes up and finds everything solved, but the solution doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's my idea of who shaves the barber in this episode. Yeah. And that's all I could come up with for the meaning of who shaves the barber in this episode. Well, who shaves the barber is feels like... It's people doing something that they already do. It's like, like, I feel like it maybe has to do with police work, but I can't quite work out in my head how that it's like who arrests the arrester. Yeah. But I don't really know. That what doesn't the, really make any sense. No, yeah. no police officers need to be arrested in this. And I read a theory somewhere about that it's about who kills Malvo is the person who can't kill. But like, I, I, I didn't repeat that theory because I think it's baloney. <laughs> I think mm. that who kills Malvo? No one in this episode kills Malvo. So what yeah, are you talking about? Exactly. Why are you making it about who kills Malvo? Yeah. So I'm re- I am landing on it's a solution that doesn't make sense. I think that there's more to it that I'm not seeing. So if you listening to this have a great understanding, have an insight into why this episode is called Who Shaves the Barber that we don't mention... By all means, get in touch with us and let us know. Yes, at Clockworkscast. So one of the things I noticed about in this episode that I wanted to make note of is um, when Chaz is arrested, mm-hmm. first when Gordo has the gun at school, which oh. is horrific, and Lester, of all the unconscionable things he does, to give his autistic nephew a gun is so unconscionable that I, I can't even barely talk about it because I'm so mad at him. <laughs> Even though, like, he does other horrible things, that just is, like, beyond the pale that that kid is going to end up in, like, juvenile detention and whatever. Oh, anyway. But uh, Kitty is Chaz's wife, Lester's sister-in-law. She so quickly believes that Chaz has done this thing. When they arrive to arrest him, she is just like, what did you do? What did you do? She doesn't... Like, I feel like if you were suddenly arrested for murder, I would be like, you've made a mistake. There is no part of Kitty that is, <laughs> you've, you made, a, you've no. made a mistake. It's, this is in fitting with Chaz's character. And that's what made him such an easy patsy for Lester, is he had all these guns and this illegal gun and this, you know, totally. and this porn habit in the garage. And this, just like, he was kind of just like, not a guy that you liked. He was, he was, you know, he was the successful brother that he kind of hated and for, you know, he had good reason to hate him. Yeah. But man, Even yeah. Even like, while he's, uh, he gets the call that there's police at the house, he's telling a story about getting a lap dance at a 
uh, yeah, strip exactly. club while his wife is on the line. He's like, I'll talk to her later. Yeah. And that's all the like, that doesn't make him a murderer. No, but it exactly. does make him like kind of a person that his wife has reason to doubt. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. And like, of course he does not get to deserve to get arrested no. for the murder he didn't commit at all, but I did find it really interesting how quickly she turned on him. Um, I also, in thinking about this, uh, this season split kind of at this episode where Mr. Wrench and Mr. Number's story is done, and that's when Budge and Pepper show up. Yeah. So you have these two partners together who are like the two henchmen partners, and they're just, you know, basically replaced by these two FBI partners. Yeah. Key and Peel are hilarious. And I mean, like, it's Fargo, so it's dark humor most of the time, and it's like, and they're not like overtly hilarious, but they do funny things. They're pretty they're funny. Pretty they're pretty funny. Like, it's hard to say. It's funny watching the season again and, like, Key and Peele have such a large impact on my memory of the season. So it's interesting to yeah, find that Yeah, they only show up in episode 7. 7 of 10 yeah. when they show up. You're like, that's not a lot. Yeah, exactly. I also, like, raise a glass for uh, Numbers and Wrench, who are awesome. Yeah, and exactly. And it's, I'm like, they're, uh, they're bad guys, but... Mm-hmm. They were really good. I love them. I saw someone say, I would happily watch a spinoff about Numbers and Wrench. Yeah, absolutely. Like, their adventures. Yep. Yeah. And that's what, I like a show like that that gives you these side characters that you want to get to know more. I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's a, that's a good, that makes a good show. Um, I love Gus and Molly in this episode. How he is so heartbroken that he shot her because he's (laughs) so in love with her. (laughs) <laughs> and and she is like she wants to forgive him because she's in love with him too and it's just like this sweet relationship be- these sweet beginnings of this relationship and this horrible thing happened <laughs> and so he just has to keep buying her flowers and flowers and flowers and and like and then to have Lou show up at the hospital made me like cry because he doesn't want his soft girl yeah. And she gets shot and like and he's been shot as a police officer and that ended his police career and he just like all of these feelings when she comes in. And all through the series he's been talking about like people aren't as likely to shoot at a hostess. Yeah. Like your job is dangerous and I don't like that you're doing it. Yeah. And then all his worries are justified. Completely grounded in reality. Yeah. She, she does get shot. Yeah, yep. totally. Exactly. Um I have a few things. I wanted to just draw attention to some things about the cinematography or the direction in this episode. And one is the focus on the backpack Mm. at the beginning. We know that there's a gun in the backpack, but they don't show it again. Mm -hmm. They just show the backpack and Gordo like brings the backpack to school and the camera just keeps keeps on the backpack. It doesn't follow him. Mm -hmm. And it's Chekhov's backpack. It's Chekhov's gun. (laughs) Ha ha. And I think it's just very well constructed. Yes, absolutely. And then the other really well constructed shot is the massacre in the Fargo oh, building. Yeah. That the camera just show. stays outside. It's brilliant. And it follows him up the stairs and each window. And like, man, 
you know, if you want to have a dramatic action scene in low budget, that's the way you do it. Yeah, but absolutely. It but also it works so well. Beautiful. Yeah, because you know, because you've already seen it in the rest of the show. You've already seen how Malvo kills people all the time with no remorse and no whatever, and so you know exactly what he's doing. And it also puts us with Pudgeant with. Pepper and Budge on mm-hmm. the outside. Yes, exactly. So they're outside. All this stuff is going on inside that they miss. Mm-hmm. And so so do we, kind of. Even though we know what's happening, we don't get to witness it because they don't get to witness it. And we're associated with them in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good. So well done. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about... I feel like Lester has a major change of perspective in this episode. Yeah. And it's symbolized, or it's symbolized isn't right, but it uh, uh, is evident in him sleeping with Sam Hess's widow. Yeah. That, like, he has been, up till now, kind of struggling to keep his head above water. Yeah. He's scheming and planning, but trying to keep, to, to survive. And most of the things he's done that are harmful and malicious have, we can believe, are like split second things. He's thinking on his feet and he's coming up with things and he doesn't care about who he hurts on the way because he just wants to survive. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas framing Gordo, we can almost, I mean, it's horrible. We can almost see it's that kind of ruthless, I don't care who I hurt to get the end that I want, which is all suspicion off of me. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of purpose to it. Whereas like he sleeps with Sam Hess, he sleeps with the widow, lies to her about the money. Mm-hmm. Like why? Just to be cruel. Yeah. It's just about power. It's about power and cruelty. He's finding, he's finding his like revenge in this cruelty because it's his revenge for the way Sam treated him like he's like looking at his picture while he's sleeping with it, like while he's having sex with his wife. Yes. They don't sleep. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> euphemisms. We like euphemisms. It's um, a family podcast. It's a family podcast. Listen to it with your family. <laughs> <laughs> don't watch Fargo with your family. Well, um, unless your family is adults. All so, adults. stories told in this episode. Bill, in the interrogation scene with Lester and Bill... Bill tells Lester the story. Instead of Lester being the one to tell the story of why he isn't guilty, Lester just sits there and Bill tells Lester, mm-hmm. this is what happened. Chaz did this. Chaz did that. You you were scared of him. You were... Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting moment of a story that's being told by Bill to Lester that absolves Lester. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the other story in this episode is Pepper telling Budge a story of how experiments were done where they took they cussed at a glass of water and he doesn't finish the story. But right. fast food is bad for you, not just I'm not just talking sanitary. Mm-hmm. They took they did an experiment where they took a glass of water and cussed at it. And he doesn't finish it, but we yeah. know it's and the glass that was cussed at was worse for you. Yeah. And that's also, I think I think that story is really thematically significant for the whole series mm-hmm. because it's one of the things of why is molly who she is because she's the glass of water who hasn't been cussed at yeah absolutely molly's who she is because lou is who he is yeah right and it's not just about parenting it's about environment in all kinds of ways mm-hmm. but i think that's one of the things this episode is 
that story is yeah. about, why that's here. Makes you wonder what on earth kind of childhood Malvo had. It does, and I think, though, it's wise that we don't ever yes, hear it. Yes, absolutely. I'm so glad we don't hear Malvo's backstory. That would be just unhelpful. Yeah. He just should appear out of nowhere like he does. Yep. So the next episode is episode eight, The Heap. Chaz is in jail, and Lester consoles his wife, Kitty. And then he gets rid of all of his late wife's things. And when Gina Hess comes to accuse Lester at his work, after finding out she's not getting the insurance settlement, Lester stands up for himself for the first time, and they leave. Molly gets back to work, and is shot down by Bill for wanting to open the case against Lester. In Fargo, agents Budge and Pepper are demoted to file work for their incompetence at catching Malvo in the act. Malvo comes to the hospital, killing a guard and setting Mr. Wrench free. Then, we flash forward a, a year later... Gus and Molly are married, and she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. Life is normal, but she still has a chart on her wall. Meanwhile, Lester has married his co-worker, Linda, and accepts an award in Vegas for Salesman of the Year. The final shot is him spotting Malvo in the bar, who is now gray-haired and different-looking. So the heap is another logical problem, or an ontological problem, and here is what it is. You have a heap of sand. You remove one grain of sand. It is still a heap of sand. Mm. When does it stop being a heap? How many single grains of sand do you have to remove for it not? Because eventually you'll remove enough that it's not a heap of sand anymore. Mm -hmm. What is the one grain of sand you removed that stopped it from being a heap? Right. So the heap is about categories, ontology, and definitions. It's about small changes making big changes. Yeah. It's about critical mass. Mm -hmm. In this episode, Pepper poses the heap logical problem to Budge, uh, sort of, not with those terms. When Did, he talks is it about, in this episode or in the next episode that he proposes that? I think it's in this episode. Okay. I wrote down that it's in this episode. Okay, that would make sense. So he talks about the file. It's a file room. Mm -hmm. You take one file out, it's still a file room. How many files do you have to take out before it's not a file room anymore? Yeah. Or a cemetery. If you take out all the bodies, is it still a cemetery? Mm -hmm. So what's the heap in this episode? Why is this episode named after the heap? What's and And I think... What's the critical mass that has made a big change in this episode? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he gets a new washing machine. He does. <laughs> I don't think that. I mean, think that's, that changes everything. No, I don't know. I think exactly we see. I think we have seen in Lester. What's the moment where he has gone from being a mild mannered. Uh, incompetent insurance salesman to a ruthless mass murdering yeah. villain we see through the whole series it's a heap there isn't any one moment Yeah, it's a whole series of small choices one after another any one of which might be the moment or any one of which might like at any moment yeah. up till now we could say that Lester was on one side or the other of this change in him. Yeah, and I do think this is the episode where he is full-on villain. Yeah. He has all the confidence of having fully gotten away with murder. 
Yeah. With accusing it, with framing his brother, he really got away with it. And so he's able to just like have the confidence to like staple a kid's head. Yeah. Without impunity. With impunity. With impunity, sorry. And then it gets, I think, one year later is really relevant to the heat because we get back a year later and things are changed, but things are the same. And why have they changed? Where was mm-hmm. the point? Where's the moment where it went from uh, Gus and Molly are just two cops working on a case together to Gus and Molly are happily are a happy couple together? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know where that moment happened. But and you can you were already seeing its trajectory, and so it doesn't exactly. surprise you even in the slightest that oh they're married by now. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. That's how you know two grown ups who started a relationship the way they did. They'd be married within a year. She'd be pregnant within a year. Absolutely. I can believe that. I can totally believe that. And Gus is a mailman now. And Gus is a mailman now. I know, Aww. it's so sweet. But that also, like, we can see that. Where was the moment where he stopped being a cop and started being a mailman? Well, a couple episodes ago, he was already kind of a mailman already. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, he, had already, he was, like, losing his job for incompetence, and rightly so. Yeah. And then... And so you know that he want it was what he wanted to do, so that yeah. he gets to do it. And then Mulvo showing up at the end of the episode is a completely different person, like uses a different name and, and has a different identity. And mm-hmm. him also, we have already seen him being able to switch his identity and change who he is. And maybe it doesn't fit exactly with the heap of small changes that lead to big changes, but it does fit to the like everything's different now. Mm-hmm. One year later, everything's different. Yeah. That fits, I think, with the idea of the heap. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the the uh, washing machine. Much like the episode, uh, was it last episode? Two episodes ago that started, doesn't matter. The episode that started with the fish. This episode also has a distinctive beginning that starts in a factory manufacturing something. Yeah, that's really And it turns out that what they were manufacturing was a new washing machine for Lester. Mm-hmm. I mentioned long ago that in the first, in the Crocodile's Dilemma, the washing machine is symbolic of Lester's life. Yeah. And it keeps being that here. Here he has completely traded it in. Mm-hmm. He's not fixing it. He's throwing the old one out, and he's getting a new one. Mm-hmm. He has a different life now. Yeah, exactly. And that's what happens. And he very easily has thrown out his old wife, and then we see him a year later with a new wife, and it's not surprising at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another heap. That his when did that happen? Well, we already saw it happening. Yeah. Yep. So true. One thing I want to say, when Lester gives a speech gives his speech at the accepting his award for being insurance salesman of the year. His confidence is different. His demeanor is different, but his pitch is actually exactly the same as his very first pitch that we saw him give to the couple who are expecting a child, right? Mm. That was so terrible and off-putting and they were like, we want to go leave now, which was what he said then was terrible things happen. You need to be insured. Mm-hmm. Like, what if you fall out? What if you get in an accident at work? Yeah. Uh, I work in a library. <laughs> I thought there wasn't a library in this town. Anyway. Does he say library? I'm pretty sure he does. I feel like I would have remembered that. Maybe he comes from a different town. Maybe he comes from a different town. But anyway, here Lester's speech for being insurance salesman of the year is exactly the same speech, or 
the content of it is the same. Terrible things happen and you need to be insured. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is interesting that all this change hasn't really changed him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's maybe connected to the heap also. That is. There's a connection to the movie Fargo in this, just in the fact that Molly is pregnant, so we mm-hmm. have a pregnant cop again. Yeah, absolutely. It's really it's, sweet. It's, yeah, it really, it's definitely meant to remind you of Marge Gunderson. Yep. And Molly has always been reminiscent of Marge Gunderson. Yeah, absolutely. But this kind of brings it full, fully realized. She's so, a fully realized Marge. <laughs> so the story in this episode is Bill shows up with his foster son, his refugee foster son. Right. Who tells a story of how he left Africa. I don't remember where in Africa. Um, he leaves his, his home and comes to America, but someone stole his luggage and he had nothing and he was hiding out in a Phoenix Farms grocery store and Bill happens to run into him. And that's the story in this episode. Remember in the end of the last episode when Molly is trying to convince Bill to go after Lester, I have all this information, I have all this evidence, and Bill says, sometimes things don't work out. Mm -hmm. And then in this episode... Bill tell Bill and his foster son, whose name I can't remember and didn't write down, tell the story of how they found each other. And Bill says, eh, sometimes things just work out. Hmm. I had not noticed that. That's really interesting. And this is the episode. Bill of the two perspectives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Molly's starting to put things together in a more solid way in this episode or... Or that she isn't really in this episode, but that is a clue to us that she's still going to. Mm-hmm. Things Absolutely. sometimes work out. Things sometimes work out. And it's connected to also the what we were talking about, about the fish, is all these things that seem unconnected. Why Phoenix Farms? Yeah, exactly. Because it is all connected. Because it is all connected. And it also speaks to the small townness mm-hmm. of of Minnesota. So there is that aspect of it. Fargo is in North Dakota, you know. Bemidji is in... Bemidji is in Minnesota. 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 Minnesota, North Dakota. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) My accent is not far off of their accent. No, it's not. And I can really play it up if I need to. Oh, yeah, you can. Um, So, yeah, it's a small town area. And so, like, there is an aspect to, like... Everyone knows each other because that's the kind of place that is Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, that prairie uh, middle America world. So episode nine. Episode nine. All right. Episode nine is called A Fox, A Rabbit, A Cabbage. During the last year, Malvo has been living as a dentist, attempting to get close to a man living under witness protection. In Vegas, Lester recognizes him and pursues him until Malvo shoots his fiance and friends. Lester flees Vegas, but Molly is suspicious. Malvo hunts for Lester and shoots his wife instead. Meanwhile, Molly meets Budge and Pepper and nearly meets Malvo in the diner. So, a fox, a rabbit, and a cabbage... This one I knew. This one you already yeah, knew? Yeah, I knew this as like a joke, almost. Back in, uh, w- when we were talking about A Muddy Road, I said it was the only episode title 
that comes up in dialogue. This one's a bit of the other exception, and it's especially a weird one because in the next episode, Pepper is going to bring up the fox, cabbage, a fox, a rabbit, and a cabbage. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come up in this episode. Yes, it does. Oh, does he? Oh, he he's does. Telling he's telling it to Budge in this episode. He's telling it to Budge in this episode. Which one's Budge? Which one's Pepper? Uh, Key is Budge and Peel is Pepper. Okay. Um, Tall, bald one is Peel. Yes, I knew that part. Okay. <laughs> he's from Parks and Rec. <laughs> <laughs> and and Key wrote Get Out. <laughs> Key wrote Get Out. Um, yeah, so he I I've completely lost who is who in that whole conversation. But yeah, Pepper he tells it he tells it to Budge tells it to Pepper while they're sent while they're lying on the floor in the in the FBI office and the guy comes in and they stand up from the floor and it's the funniest scene I've ever seen. In my life. I was <laughs> it's just really I funny. was killing myself laughing watching it again. But like they're literally the one stands up and, and then he like slowly rises from the floor and he's like, How many of you are there back there? <laughs> so good. Yeah, just like watch that scene again if you haven't watched it in a while. So the things about the fox, the rabbit, and the cabbage, we I think it's appropriate to talk about it now, even though it happens in the next episode, that Pepper will ask Lester this logical problem and Lester solves it. Um yeah, when absolutely. Budge can't solve it. Mm-hmm. Let's maybe not answer that. Or gets interrupted before he can. Yeah, and it seems like Budge just isn't really interested in solving No, it. and like he brings up, he's, the heap also gets brought up and he doesn't care about solving yeah. it as well. Pepper's all about these logical problems, uh, these paradoxes, and Budge is like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Yeah. Just eat all three of them. Who, who, what are you asking? Me? Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> but I feel like in addition to being a logical problem, the fox, the rabbit, and the cabbage is about people's nature. You can't train the fox not to eat the rabbit. Mm. You can't train the rabbit not to eat the cabbage. You can't train the rabbit not to eat the cabbage. It's not how that story usually gets used, but I think in the context of Fargo, it's similar to the story of the frog and the scorpion. Mm-hmm. Like, the fox is going to do what foxes do. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's you know something about both Lester and Malvo and that that they are going to do what they do. They're going mm-hmm. to do their thing. Yeah. Uh, and more people are going to end up dead. Yeah. And putting them together makes that happen too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my comments on this episode are basically just, uh, well, first my, I have a question about this episode, which is Molly shows up in the house, shows up at Lester's door and asks questions about why they left Vegas so fast. Mm-hmm. Linda lies. She does. She deliberately lies to protect Lester. Mm-hmm. Which means that she knows that Lester is lying. Yeah, absolutely. Right? She lies to protect Lester, so she must suspect Lester of something. Yeah, absolutely. Because she really gives... An affect of being wide-eyed, innocent. Oh, everything's wonderful. She gives her little speech about... But she's attracted to him because he's a bad boy. Yeah. She first, like, in the, the when he beats the kids with the stapler, is when she's like, oh, Lester. And it's like, this, like, suddenly he's a bad boy, and that's what she's attracted to. And so 
there's a part of her that wants to like, I've got to protect him just in case he's involved in something. But I don't think she's quite smart enough to see yeah. the end result of that. That like, no. hey, your husband's a murderer. Like, I don't, I think she's, I think she's innocent enough to believe the best in him, even though she thinks that he does bad things. Yeah, or she's innocent enough to believe that the rabbit's not going to eat this cabbage. Yes, exactly. Right? Exactly. It totally is. Like, even the... I mean, what struck me looking back an episode, if you're thinking about Linda, I think she was interested in him before and showed that she was interested in him before that, but it really was, like, a big moment. It was amazing when he fought off two children. Mm-hmm. But in that scene, she was there when the Widow Hess was saying, like... You know, you slept with me, you came inside me, came inside, <laughs> you came inside me of picking your pubic hair out of my teeth. Right. Yeah. Uh, that like, I have trouble understanding why that makes him desirable to her. That yeah. like he, the fact that he's, uh, that he's not the wuss she thought he she's was. She's not the wuss he thought she was. She thought he was, I suppose. He's, he has, like, you know, this edge to him that that's attractive to a certain kind of woman. I feel yeah. like that's, in stereotype, I feel like that's playing on all sorts of tropes of, like, oh, you're suddenly so strong and manly and you have sex with people. And, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. That, like, uh, specifically, the having sex with her is gross. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> but that's not Linda. Yeah. Linda doesn't think that. Totally. Oh, my other my other comment is just that we talked in when we were talking about the last episode about Lester's change in him. Mm-hmm. And now he is he's new Lester, extremely ruthless. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this. I mean, if we're going to go talk all the way to the end of the episode, his setting up of Linda is unbelievable. Yeah, it is like. He sets her up completely from the beginning. He pulls her out of the house, not wearing a coat, so he can give her his coat, so he can send her somewhere where she is going to get killed by Malvo. Like, there's no question. He just straight up gets her murdered. Yeah. Yeah. With no no remorse or no ounce of, like... Like, he makes a face (sighs) when she gets killed that if you were watching just that scene... You might think that it's, oh no, my wife is killed. But if you watch the whole episode, and even more if you watch the whole season, mm-hmm. you now have been trained to understand that face that he makes is like, oh, I'm so close to being killed. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, he doesn't yeah. care about her at all. Not at all. And, and like, oh, and he goes into the diner and like does that thing that people do when they're lying if like repeating himself and like saying mundane details like they're important yeah and lou is like so smart yeah he instantly catches on like something is up with him yeah he's totally. acting weird like he's announcing he's going to the bathroom he's announcing all this stuff like it doesn't make any sense it's funny that lester has gotten away with things so long when he's a bad liar no he's such a bad liar yeah, absolutely. But he's better at lying uh, when he's improving than he is when he's planned it out. Yeah, exactly. I have that written even for the next episode, that Lester with a plan is a much worse actor than Lester without a plan. Yeah. Yeah. So the two stories in this episode, one is told by Lou. He says, I had a case in 79. I mm. saw something I've never seen before. Yeah. Savagery. Animal. 
Yeah. So why is that story? Well, obviously he's applying that. Like that's he sees that instantly in Malvo. Yeah. And he's also teasing. He's teasing him to see his reaction. What will your reaction be when I tell you a horrible story? And Malvo's reaction is to act like a wolf. Yeah. Is to act like, oh, there were lots of bodies. That's interesting. Where like, instead of being properly horrified like a good person, you know, like there's, he can tell something is wrong with this guy. He doesn't like him much. Yeah. And it's funny that he tells that story to Malvo, though, because why is he, like, is he trying to gauge something in Malvo, or is he trying to tell Malvo something? Is he trying to tell Malvo, like, I see through you? Mm, That too, I think. I think he's trying to gauge something in Malvo, and also trying to, like, I'm a police officer. I might be running this diner at this moment, but I know how to take care of myself, and I'm this intelligent and... Yeah. Yeah. And yep. I mean, that story is also extremely relevant because it is the story of the second season. Yep. And we're going to find out all about 79 and that savagery and Lou Salverson, and it's pretty awesome. And I have, in this episode, such, like, the emoji with hard eyes <laughs> for Greta and Lou. For like Lou oh, is like yeah. you're the granddaughter I always wished I had but never thought to buy and like and he's just like so sweet with her and so mm-hmm. like she's immediately part of the family. I love them. I love them so much. I love that whole family of Gus and Lou and uh, Gus and Molly and and Greta and then yeah. Lou is the grandfather is it's a beautiful picture. It's and, very sweet. Yeah. So another story told in this episode is Linda tells a story of her childhood. She says when I was. Uh, five when we moved to America, mm-hmm. and I worked in my parents' motel. And one time, I was cleaning up the motel, and I found a BM between yeah. the mattress and the box spring. Why would anyone do that? It's so much easier just to go to the toilet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the story that she tells. And her moral of the story is, and I've gone from that terrible life to now I'm here with you and everything is great with you. Mm-hmm. Well, meanwhile, he has already planned out to that she is dead. L- lead her to her death. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what, like... I feel like um, this story, like the spider story, is something that, like, it's an urban legend, but it's also the kind of person who would do that, the kind of person who would poop in a mattress, is Malvo. Yeah, totally. Who, like, he aggressively poops in front of the, <laughs> the the hockey guy, the guard guy. He, like, is talking to him and he, like, he tries to intimidate him and instead he just, like, sits down in the toilet with the door wide open and poops. And, like, how do you even do that? But, like, I've never, like, basically aggressively poops at him. And <laughs> yeah, that's the, it's like, fantastic. what kind of person would do that? Malvo would do that. Yeah, for sure. For reasons. Um, you did, don't, I have another story that you haven't mentioned yet. Oh, I yet. missed one. Um, there's a story that Malvo tells to the two kids that are at Lester's house. He goes to try and find Lester at his old house. Right. And he's not there anymore. And so Malvo says to the kids, like, this house is haunted. You know what? There was people killed in this house and blah, blah, blah. Lester used to hear people in the basement. And, like, 
he just does it to be like this spreader of chaos again. We really see that Malvo that we saw in the first episode of like, what reason does he have to freak out these kids? And like, he acts like, oh, haha, ha, I'm just telling this story because you tell a story. And like, but he knows. Yeah, of he's certainly doing it on purpose. So he's doing to it on purpose them. to upset the kids and to give them nightmares and to make, and like, to upset the dad. For no reason. They've done nothing to him. They've done nothing but be there in Lester's old house. Yeah. It's so, yeah. Hmm. So I don't know what that story means necessarily other than it just, re- it's more of Reinforces Lauren Lauren's character. It yeah. may be, I mean, stories of ghosts are about uh, the past continues to exist even when you've moved on from it. Hmm. Yeah. So episode 10 is called Morton's Fork. Lester does his best to cover up the murder of Linda, but fails to redirect suspicion, causing him to be escorted by the two FBI agents, who are killed by Malvo. Malvo attempts to kill Lester, only to be hurt by a bear trap. He returns to his cabin to find Gus, who shoots him. Later, Lester is on the run on a snowmobile, but seals his own fate when he falls through the ice. A pregnant Molly is named Chief, and Gus receives an award for bravery. And the end of the episode, we fade to white instead of black for the first time. So, so that's the end of the show. That's the end or of the, the first season. First season. So Morton's Fork is named after a 15th century Archbishop Morton, who... He liked his salt. Apparently said, salt? Morton's salt. I don't know what that is. It's a brand of salt that's famous. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> it's a thing. Morton salt. Morton salt girl. With the... Archbishop Morton famously said, A person living modestly is obviously saving money and can afford to pay their taxes. A person living extravagantly obviously has money and can afford to pay their taxes. So that's a fork. Two, mm. cho- two choices. Two roads. But it's a false choice. They both lead to the same conclusion. Right. So, one way of... One suggestion for why this episode is Morton's Fork is... uh, Molly says, I gotta... Like, I gotta do this. It's my job. Hmm. And Lou says, well, there's two ways of looking at it. One is you've gotta. The other is you don't. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? So Lou says there's two ways of looking at it, but to Molly it's Morton's Fork. Either way leads to the same conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Another connection to that is maybe that all of Lester's choices throughout the whole season, uh, we see here how they have all led to this conclusion. Mm -hmm. That Death or arrest or... Death, or like, all of his choices lead to his death. Yeah. And it was Morton's fork all along. Yeah. It was always going to lead to this conclusion. This mm-hmm. was the end that we were leading to. Yeah, absolutely. And for the purpose of this episode, that is uh, strengthened because the episode starts with him falling... Starts with the ice. Mm-hmm. So then all the choices that Lester makes throughout the episode have already led to this conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that I didn't notice until I watched it a second time, that we begin with this, like, crashed over snowmobile and this shot through the ice. Yeah, and, and I know, didn't and notice then, it even the second time until you pointed it out to there me. There you go. Well, because <laughs> I'm smarter than you, so, yeah. 
Um, I'm really sad that they killed off Budge and Pepper. Yeah, me too. I felt like all the good people were living, you know? They had a lot... Most of the people who were, like, working for the forces of good outlive, except for Budge and Pepper. Mm-hmm. And they die pretty horribly. Mm-hmm. They die quickly, at least. I guess, I maybe. And I... There's a moment that I really enjoy where Gus is trying to convince Molly not to go out. Mm-hmm. He successfully convinces her not to go out. And it feels like I'm watching this and I'm going... Molly's a big girl. She's really smart. Stop trying to control her. And then he says, I can't take her to another funeral. Right. And you remember that Greta has had a mom who's died before and she's been calling Molly mom. Yeah. And suddenly all of Gus's what feels like controlling is just like he's just deeply grieving and he does not want to lose his wife and his unborn child, and that is a really fair position to be in. It is. And it is fair that Molly doesn't need to go out. She does have a whole police force to go out and look for Malvo. Yeah. She doesn't need to be the one to kill him. No. And I think she does make the right choice in staying safe and keeping for her while. for a while. Yeah. And keeping her word to her father and her husband. Mm-hmm. Even though, yeah, it's, she's badass. And I think they would have been satisfying to have Molly kill Malvo. But it is really satisfying to have Gus kill Malvo. Yeah, because Gus has been good but weak. Yeah. Molly has never been weak. Mm-hmm. And so Molly, it would be satisfying for Molly to kill Malvo, but it wouldn't be redemptive for her. Yeah, Because exactly. she has nothing she needs to redeem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. She sort of needs to redeem her reputation when people believe her and she becomes chief. That's her redemption. Mm-hmm. But And when Pepper and Budge are like, this is excellent work, that's her redemption. Mm-hmm. But all of that is external redemption. Yeah. She's always internally been doing what she should. Mm-hmm. Whereas Gus didn't. And so when he gets a chance to do, I mean, I don't think actually killing people is the right thing. No, me neither. But for the purpose of the show, let's pretend it is. Yeah, exactly. So when he does what he should have done, he takes Malvo, he takes care of Malvo in a way that he should have done and failed to. It's personally redemptive for him. Mm -hmm. So I did question, like, is it fair that he gets to kill Malvo? And is it also, it's retribution for emasculating him. Yeah. Which is coming full circle from Lester. It's true. Who killed his wife for emasculating him. And I don't believe in emasculating. I think that's the false, like, making you're like, you're not a real man is there is no real man to begin with. But it does feel like it's come full circle where Lester killed his wife for being emasculating to him and Gus kills kills Malvo for emasculating him. Yeah, and that leads to, like, I don't think so, but the epi- the structure of the season really raises for us, like, is Gus Lester? Yeah. Is Les- Gus gonna Lester be a- seemed like a nice guy on the outside mm-hmm. before the series started. He seemed like a weak guy. Yeah, it's true. He didn't really but seem But he nice. has 
Molly, and he has Lou, and he has, like, Lester had no support system around him to cause him to be good, mm-hmm. whereas Gus does. Mm-hmm. And I think that that will make him not, you know, go to the dark side after this. <laughs> <laughs> so the, after this, remember back in The Crocodile's Dilemma? I remember, Paul. <laughs> just earlier today when we were talking about it. <laughs> Um, and Malvo stares at the deer. Yeah. And now there's a wolf. There's a wolf. So this whole season begins with a deer and ends with a wolf. Yeah. What is that about? Yeah, the wolves are at the outside. There's that story. And there's just, and like... And if we're going to talk... It also connects to Legion again with, like, the wolves are at the door. The mm-hmm. wolves. And he also, he doesn't hit the wolf. Yeah. He almost hits the wolf because he's talking on the phone. But, but he doesn't. Whereas in the first episode, Malvo kills the deer. Malvo kills the prey animal. But Gus doesn't kill the predator animal. Mm. Even though he does kill the predator human. Yeah. He doesn't kill the animal. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could talk more about if we want to move towards the whole season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, okay. So, like, do we want to talk any more about anything in this specific episode? Because then we need to, we have a lot to talk about about the full season. I mean, I could just say. And we're say, going on so long. <laughs> I should talk about stories in this episode. Okay, yeah, stories in this is, episode. Lester says, I'm not a monster. And Molly says, there was a man running for a train and he drops a glove. Gets on the train and realizes he doesn't have the glove. Looks out the window and what does he do? And Lester doesn't know. And Molly says he drops the other glove on the platform. That way whoever finds the first glove can just have the pair. Yep. (laughs) This is a story that doesn't have any, like, it, it follows the formula of a lot of stories in Fargo where what's the point of this story? And we would expect... Well, here's what the point. But uh, Molly doesn't give Lester or us the key to understanding Mm -hmm. why that story is relevant to anything. Mm -hmm. Lester says, I'm not a monster. Molly tells him a story about losing a glove. What are you trying to tell me? Have a good day. What is the point of that story? Why does she tell it to him? Be a good person? I don't know. And immediately it's followed by another story, the other story of the episode... Which is Pepper telling Lester the riddle of the fox, the rabbit, right. and the cabbage. And he does understand that story and solve it immediately. Yeah. Because... Because he understands the nature of predator and prey. But he doesn't understand the nature of giving something away. Which links to the other story of I gave all my like stuff away until I gave all my, organ- my organs away. Yeah. Like Lester understands self-preservation. Thinking of people as chess pieces. Mm-hmm. Mani- how do you manipulate the situation to your advantage? Like, yes. Lester sees that. Yeah. Helping others, Lester just does not understand that story. Yeah. And so Molly's telling him that story exactly because he doesn't understand what it's about. Mm-hmm. The point of that story is that he doesn't understand it. Yeah. I'm not a monster. And she says anyone, implicitly she says, anyone who wasn't a monster would know you drop the other glove. Yeah. If you hold on to that other glove, you are a monster. Mm-hmm. 
Subtext. Subtext. The other thing I think uh, before we move on from this episode is that another connection to Legion, which is a more substantive connection to Legion than any other one yet. That is, it's a theme-wise connection, which is Pepper in this episode is really obsessed with, is this a dream? Yeah. Is this a dream? How do we know this is real? Mm-hmm. And that's a theme that goes through the whole series, I think. Mm-hmm. It also really connects to Legion. Like, what's a dream? What's the nature of reality? How yeah. do you know what's real? How do you know whether you're in a dream? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that him, yeah, that Noah Hawley starting to think about that concept is how leads to Legion. I would bet this isn't the first time that he's thought I'm of sure that concept. I'm sure it isn't. But no. yeah, like Noah Hawley starts it. that idea here and he fleshes that part of his of his worldview out way in out in yeah, Legion. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the season as a whole. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Lorne records people's conversations. We never mentioned that when we were talking about the episodes. Is that we see that all throughout the season is Lauren has these tapes, and that's finally what like officially convicts Le- would have convicted Lester. Yeah, is there's a recording. There's a recording of him saying that he killed his wife, and he likes to listen to them, and so he just like he likes suffering so much that he's willing to carry around this case of tapes that like clearly implicates him like he's not trying to get away with anything mm-hmm. he just wants to hear the suffering over and over like what is up like and the show begins with it the it very does. first scene the first thing is he's doing is listening. listening to a tape yeah i think i mean that brings me maybe to i want to talk if we want to talk about malvo and how he sees the world one of my under my ways of understanding all the titles, all the titles of the episodes are logic puzzles. Mm-hmm. So maybe the show as a whole is a logic puzzle. Yeah. But alternatively, and we can get to the show as a logic puzzle more if we want to, but an alternative reading of that is that all the episode titles are about how the world is as you perceive it. Hmm. All the logic puzzles that we get are about how you see things a certain way and that shapes the world. Mm-hmm. You don't see things. You How the choice you make affects the choices that are going to happen next because the world that's possible is controlled by the, how you see it and how you perceive it. Mm-hmm. So that leads me to how do these characters perceive the world? Mm. So Malvo says a few times... Things that are like his statement. He, more than anyone in the whole show, he's the one who states his worldview yeah. most and most clearly. Like he talks to the motel. He says, I just want to know the policy. Mm. You see, I'm a student of institutions. Yeah. And as we talked about that already, that Malvo wants to know the policy. Yeah. Not because he wants to follow it. No. Just he wants to know what the rules are. He wants to know what the rules are, and he thinks he does understand what the rules are. And he he says to... I didn't write down who he says this to. I think he says it to... I'm pretty sure he says it to Lester. You've spent your whole life thinking there are rules. There aren't. Mm-hmm. He wants to know the policy, and 
when later we he says you've spent your whole life thinking there are rules and there aren't it's because he wants to know the policy so that he can prove to himself and to everyone around that the policy isn't real hmm. so why does he want to poke holes in the policy he wants to prove that it's not uh that it's uh self-contradictory or not consistent so that he can prove that rules in general don't really exist, aren't internally coherent, don't make sense, and he doesn't have to follow them. Mm -hmm. No one does, right? Yeah. And when the, he's selling, when he's buying stuff from that guy who sells drugs and weapons out of his truck, who tries to sell him a zombie kit, remember? Right. He says, yeah. like, when the world goes all dog-eat-dog, -dog, and Malva says, the world's well, already dog-eat-dog. -dog. Not sure yeah. what difference a few zombies are going to make. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like those are his statements of his perspective on the world. Mm -hmm. And he really does. The way he perceives the world shapes what the world is for him. Yeah. That maybe connects to him taking tapes of people being evil. Mm-hmm. Because he proves his point. Exactly. Yeah. He can listen to them and prove his own point to himself. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of uh, the Flannery O'Connor story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, mm. where the misfit, the villain of that story, has a speech at the end where he says, like, he, because it's Flannery O'Connor, explicitly connects it all to uh, religion. Mm -hmm. And the misfit in A Good Man is Hard to Find says, look, either Jesus raised the dead or he didn't. And if he did... There's nothing you can do except follow him. But if he didn't, there's no point in this world at all except meanness. Hmm. And there's a little bit of Malvo in that too. That like, there's no pleasure or point in this world except to be mean to people. That's sad. <laughs> so what about Lester then? What is Lester's perspective on the world? Like if we're going to talk about, I want to talk about four characters. Okay. And that's Malvo, Lester, Molly, and Gus. Okay. So what about Lester? I'd say I would start talking about Lester by talking about his infected hand throughout the whole series, throughout the whole season. His infected hand, I think it's symbolic of moral rot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's not exactly his guilt, but he... He feels the pain of his moral rot at first, mm -hmm. and eventually it gets so bad that he it skews how he understands and perceives the world so that mm -hmm. he can't even recognize what is happening in it. Mm -hmm. And then that pain goes away. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that the rot has gone away. It just mm -hmm. means he doesn't feel the pain anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's where he becomes the, basically, like, the monster he becomes is through that numbing of what he actually did and is doing. And the other symbol of Lester, I think, is the blood stain. I mean, we talked about the washing machine throughout, but the blood stain on the floor of his house, I think, is what is symbolic of his guilt. Uh, the stain of what he's done stays there, and every time he sees it, he, like walks around it, mm -hmm. but he doesn't clean it up. No. Until he successfully frames Chaz. Yes. And then he has erased his own responsibility for what he's done, so he mm -hmm. cleans up the blood because it doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't feel guilty anymore. And that's when he also changes his perspective on the world. Absolutely. I have a question about Lester, which is what is up with all the motivational slogans all around his house? It seemed like that was his wife who had them. Mm -hmm. 
but didn't really live by them. It's it's a case that is, for a lot of people, is putting up these slogans in their houses, but don't actually ever read them or know what they mean. The one in the basement that gets the big blood stain on it is the, what if you're right and everyone else is wrong? Hmm. That's definitely meaningful. That's like the thesis of the entire show, yeah. is Lester believes that maybe he's right. Maybe he should. Maybe it was right that he killed his wife. Maybe it was right that he that Sam Hess died, and then everything he does goes from that. He hides the hammer behind that sign. Yeah, and maybe the uh, point for Lester is he should have earlier had someone tell him, what if you're wrong and everyone else is right? Yeah, exactly. This motivational believe in yourself uh, can go really, really wrong. Yeah, that's so true. We got Gus, we talked about in The Six Ungraspables, his, what I think is his statement of his perspective in the world, is when his neighbor tells him that story about the man who gives everything, and one, mm-hmm. his neighbor says that the moral of the story is, only a fool thinks he can save the world, and Gus says, you gotta try, you? Gotta you gotta try, yep. Molly. I think, I think his other statement of himself is in burden's ass when he says when a dog goes rabid there's no mistaking it for a normal dog us people we're supposed to know better we're supposed to be better and molly's right uh Mm -hmm. i don't know how you must be hard to live in the world if you think that's true yeah right but he's disillusioned by things, and you can see how that shapes his reality throughout the entire show. Yeah. He believes that people are supposed to be good, mm-hmm. right? And makes him a bad cop. Yeah, and Bill believes that too. Yeah, and that's why he can no longer be chief. By the end, is that he is just like I just wanted to, you know, I didn't want to think about these big life and death things. I just wanted to do my job and drink some beer, and I don't know exactly what he says, but, but yeah, totally. Yeah. So, Molly, uh, Molly's Molly the one the that I have the hardest time on. She, I would say, I not not she's the one I have the hardest time on, but she is the one of those big four characters who never makes a statement. I watched the whole series, and then I watched it again with subtitles on 12 times fast, <laughs> so I could see everything she ever says. She never does some, says something that I think can be like a statement of her perspective on the world unless it's it's my job yeah which she says several times you Mm -hmm. can't you shouldn't do this to get it's my job yeah but i don't think that's much of a life statement yeah she's just really smart and perceptive and she sees everything Mm -hmm. she sees everything for what it actually is from the very beginning she knows exactly what's happened and she just keeps knowing that it's like a curse of uh, of Cassandra in Greek mythology where she knows the truth, but no one will believe her. Yeah. And that's, like, I mean, it's also just the curse of being a woman. Like, a man, this is a female cop story mm-hmm. of being smart, knowing exactly what's going on, and not having men believe you. Yeah. And this is a story that happens, and it's, like, spot on to... So many women's uh, experience. She 
when Gus tells her the story of the guy who gave everything, she says, why didn't the fellow just go work in a charity? Yeah, exactly. Right? She's very practical. And that connects maybe to it's my job. Mm-hmm. She wants to make the world a better place. She is perceptive enough to recognize that she has skills that can be used to do that. And she's pragmatic enough to say, well, I'm going to just do what I can do. She's kind of got Gus's, you got to try. But she's also got like, I understand my place in the world and my scope and what I can do and what I can't. Except that she doesn't really understand what she can't because she won't give up on the murder investigation, even though it seems clearly to be a lost cause. Mm -hmm. Um, The last I said we'd talk about four of them. I want to make one little statement of, I think, Lou Salverson gives a statement of <laughs> his uh, his perspective on the world in The Rooster Prince. And that is, he says, you need to see what's good in the world. Because if you don't, how are you going to live? Yeah, exactly. And, and that, we'll talk about Lou so much more in season two. So there's not, we don't want to spoil too much about what Lou's no. about. But that's very much what Lou is about. So, so do you want to talk about the last thing we want to talk about? Oh, yes, that first. I want to yes. talk through the whole series, mm-hmm. like through the whole season, children. What is up with children yes, on this show? It's really interesting. And it does, and this kind of continues to the second season, is disabled children, intellectual disabilities. Yeah. That we have Stavros's son, who is clearly mentally disabled. We have... Uh, Chaz's son, Gordo, with uh, autism. He has the autism, as he says. Uh, and then we have Sam Hess's, the widow Hess's children, who are just like... So we have. I feel like we have everything yeah. in this show, in this season, from people with diagnosed... Yeah, disabilities. With diagnosed disabilities, to people who are just kind of dumb. Yeah. Right? And their children all fall somewhere on there. Yeah, exactly. Like whether it's uh, diagnosed and uh, pathological or whether it's just like they're just dumb and mean. Mm-hmm. Why are all the children? I don't know. I don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it does show uh, a lack of, possibly a lack of hope in the second, the next generation is mm-hmm. we don't see anyone from the next generation who's going to rise up and be like Molly. Mm-hmm. We see children who are struggling instead, but we also see uh, the Stavros's son who is good yeah. and just wants to be good and wants to be with his dad and is like a good kid and then he and he dies. Yeah. And then the Hess children who are just terrible in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. And Gordo, who's kind of in between there, where he's just, I don't know. Yeah, we can, I think what... Oh, and but except Greta. Except Greta. Greta is, the only Greta is a child who is... Who's very, and having, and she, and so her intelligence is really highlighted by all of that. True. She's the only girl. She's the only girl. Girls are the best. Girls That's, are smart. <laughs> Girls are smart. No, but I don't want to talk like autism is dumb. That's I know. Not, definitely that's, not what we're saying. Absolutely not what we're saying. Don't hear that as what we're saying, but uh, there is a conne- there is a thematic connection between 
um, the all the, the boys, boys, the four boys, yes, and they're not the same as each other. Mm-hmm. And they're no two of them are the same as each other, except the the Hess boys are pretty interchangeable. Yeah, but like you've pointed out that the way that Stavros's son is uh, mentally disabled in some way, but good, mm-hmm. and. The Hess boys are mentally disabled in some way, but evil mm-hmm. is like disconnecting intelligence from virtue. Yes, exactly. And it's a bit how they're raised. Yeah. Although Stavros doesn't seem like he would have raised his son particularly yes, well. That's true. Right? Like Stavros. Or even the ex wife. Even the ex wife. She's pretty terrible too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's about the future. Mm-hmm. It's about. I don't know. It's just an interesting thing to note. It is. The other thing, we talked about the wolves. We could talk about the snow throughout this whole series. Hmm. There's a lot of blood on snow, and that's Fargo in general. That's the image that you'll always see for Fargo the movie and Fargo the show is blood on snow. Yeah. And this pure white idealistic communities in Minnesota being... Uh, having this horrific violence come out of them. Being stained. Being stained. When we watched it, you said, like, I talked about Flannery O'Connor, and she's an example of Southern Gothic. And when we watched the show, you used the phrase Northern Gothic. Yeah. Like, that's what Fargo is, is Northern Gothic. Northern Gothic. It's a new kind of Gothic. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a small town, Northern small town. Yeah. It's... I mean, also to to even talk about how it's filmed a little bit in terms of Northern, this is exactly the kind of climate and very close to the place that I grew up. And it's filmed in Calgary, Alberta, which is, which is uh, not far from where I grew up. And it is the first time I have ever seen proper cold winter on TV. Yeah. Winter on TV is either filmed in California with fake spray on snow, which is an insult, Gilmore Girls, <laughs> or it is like it's filmed in a warm winter where all the snow, like Fargo the movie, frankly, is filmed where it's like slush. Yeah. The snow is not about, actual Oh, it's cold. a cold one, but all the slush is slushy and anyone yeah, who lives you, somewhere cold is Yeah, like if garbage. you've actually experienced <laughs> cold snow, you know that that's not what snow does when it's actually, actually minus 30 out, which is how cold it gets in these places. And it was filmed where it gets that cold and it shows that prairie cold. And it felt just like watching it was like watching home to me. And I loved it. We talked, when we talked to Craig Rubleski, he he gave us some behind the scenes that like the film was actually, was actually filmed in a year that was a historic cold snap for Calgary. Yeah, exactly. And Craig Rubleski does these like beautiful shots of the prairies. And even if you follow him on Instagram, you'll see his, he does these beautiful like prairie sky shots, these images, and he does it in in Fargo as well. He's one of the two cinematographers and mm -hmm. like, I don't know for sure, but I would bet that the beautiful prairie shots are his work because Mm -hmm. it's what he does on Instagram too. And they're gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
in the slow I mean in terms of theme and snow in this yes, season in this season, the snowstorm that keeps looming mm-hmm. is symbolic of the violence that keeps looming. Yeah, that it's exactly. something is coming and we know it's coming yep. and we try to prepare for it and we do not succeed in preparing mm-hmm. for it. Do we want a couple of plows and a baby plow and like this is not going to be good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, I think the big thing to talk about that we've been skirting around mm-hmm. all episode all is episodes. every episode of Fargo starts with, this is a true story. Mm-hmm. Is this a true story? Literally? Did this actually literally happen in the real world? No. Same with Fargo the movie, is it starts with that. And people were obsessed with like, well, I can find that money or something right. or and like no it never was an actual true story so why would you say that why do they say i mean then why they did it in the movie i think is the same reason but we're talking about the show yes and i think in the show he really noah holly really leans into that this yep. is a true story by mm-hmm. the way that people tell stories throughout the se- the show was why I have focused on the stories as we've talked through the show, because people are always telling stories in the show and they're telling stories that are true stories or not true stories. I think of the spiders in the neck, like, was that a true story? Yeah. Well, none of this is true, but maybe all of it is true in some sense of truth. Mm-hmm. One of what the is thing- truth? <laughs> I mean, one of the things I think that Noah Hawley is doing in this season and in this series and more in season three than ever when we get to it is what is the nature of reality mm-hmm. and what is a story mm-hmm. and where do those two things go together how what does a story have to be to be true right mm-hmm. and when those words appear on the screen this is a true story and they say more things but the word true always fades out first mm-hmm so it's so this you is a know, story. It's a hint. You're always getting visual hints that no, it's not literally true, but this is a true story. Yeah. This is a story. This is a true story, and the true fades out, and it just says this is a story. Mm-hmm. And I don't know I don't have a deep conclusion to conclude this episode of Clockworks on which is, if you've been sticking with us, I hope you didn't do this all in one sitting. <laughs> yeah, my goodness. We but, just can go on forever about things we like. But yeah, it's because he's drawing attention, the show mm-hmm. is drawing attention to the concept of truth and the concept of a story. Mm-hmm. And so to every one of the stories, and so is the fact that every one of the episodes is named after a logical paradox or a parable. I think a parable is a great example of a true story that's not a true story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because a parable is a story that is told to express a truth. Yeah. And so is a Zen cone, a different kind of truth, but they're two different kinds of stories that are true despite not being true. And so the show is trying to show us what a true story is. Yeah. And the nature of the world. And the, the connection with what is reality connects us back with the other show we love so much legion it does so i think we could i think we will probably come back to talking about this is a true story for in our episode about season two and episode about season three Mm -hmm. um let's end here for this long discussion Mm -hmm. about season one of fargo i want to say first of all 
thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters who made doing this Fargo possible. I was really excited that we that they gave us enough for this, and especially to our ultimate patron, Nancy, who pushed us over the edge. Yes. Special thanks. If you'd like to be a part of that support, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash clockworkscast, where you can support our podcasting and... Get a little bit of extra bonus content. Yeah, for a dollar a month, or as much as you choose to support us. You can contact us by email at clockworkscast at gmail.com. We read all of your emails and answer them. You can also tweet us at clockworkscast, and also we'll read all your tweets and answer them. Mm-hmm. So we'd I'd love, love to. I'd love to hear more thoughts on on Fargo. What what people are thinking, and I know that there's a couple of of patrons who really want to hear about Fargo. So we can't wait to have that conversation with you. Yeah. So they... look forward soon yep. to a second bonus episode all about season two of Fargo. We'll get that out as soon as. We can. We need to rewatch the whole season before we can record and talk about it. Yep. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Goodbye.